everyone, and welcome to episode 173 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke, and we are back once again for part five of our series talking about the World Wrestling Federation in the year 1992. And as we have with every episode of this look at the WWF in 1992 and 1990 and 1991, we are joined by the one and only Kyle Ross of the Top Rope Nation podcast by way of Cleveland, Ohio. Kyle Thank you so much for joining me on this particular episode because I am fired up. Yes, the fifth and final yes. part of 1992. We have, we have finally made it through uh, 1992, or I, I guess in uh, about three hours' time, uh, we will have made it through 1992. And I'm really looking forward to this one, too, because while well, we spent the majority of part four on your side of the pond, talking, of course, SummerSlam 92 from mm-hmm. Wembley Stadium, a key component here in Part 5, Survivor Series, was right here in my backyard, i.e. Richfield, Ohio, right down I-77 from me. Uh, a suburb of Cleveland is Richfield. And, you know, uh, of course, Survivor Series was in Richfield in 87 and 88, the old Coliseum uh, where the mm-hmm. Cavs used to play. Now they play downtown uh, proper. But the key here, Liam, what makes this fun is Survivor Series 92, I was there. So Bruce Pritchard, take note, everything I say is 100% accurate on this podcast today. (laughs) Impeccable accuracy, as you would expect here at at SEG Radio. But I do want to say, before we get into kind of the nuts and bolts of this... Um, I obviously just for the for the listeners who have maybe not heard part four, and if you haven't, go back to the archives at squaredcirclegazette.podbean.com, where you can find all of the obviously every archive, every show we've ever done is archived there. But part four in particular ended off after the title change that we're going to be talking about. Uh, just to kind of recap in a second, back to Ric Flair as the world champion. But I am so looking forward to this show, Kyle, because there is something about periods of time like the one we're going to talk about from that point in September, all the way through to the end of 1992, periods like this in company history where they are kind of transition periods out of one era, trying to find its new identity. The, the end of 97 has a similar appeal to me and start of 98. Uh, so I am absolutely fired up. And of course, you know, on part four, we talked about SummerSlam 1992 being a big topic of conversation over here. Survivor Series 92, your neck of the woods. Yes. So, um... You know, just to, uh, we'll get to that in a second, but just to piggyback off what you said, I'm really yep. excited about this show. Um, I'm like really excited, of course, about every show we've done covering these years. But when I was break, rereading the notes last night, this reminded me a lot of when we broke down 1990 mm. in a sense that we, we don't, we're not overwhelmed by outside the ring stories yes. here. We can really focus on what the company was doing on screen and evaluating. I think that's what we like the most certainly um you cannot tell the story of the early 90s wwf without talking about the outside stuff the scandals and whatnot but um i am really really looking forward to breaking down these last several months of 1992 and as you just touched on liam last time on the show of course people should listen to these things in order it's, it'd be kind of weird to just jump into 92 at this part <laughs> without listening to the first four parts and that goes for the other years as well but you know, there was so much enthusiasm that your country had for the WWF in the summer of 92. We talked yeah. about this part four, right? It was the first big uh, pay-per-view, obviously. It was the only pay-per-view until uh, 2022 yeah. uh, that they did over there. Much different tale I'm going to spin here regarding my own social circles, regarding uh, going to Survivor Series here in the fall in Cleveland. 
this was the school year for me. It would have been sixth grade. Yes, sixth grade. No, actually seventh. Seventh. Okay. Seventh grade. Where I realized wrestling wasn't as popular as it used to be. Mm. I remember in a homeroom in the sixth grade, like that's kind of like, you, just, you know, you, you get to school, you, you gather, they make sure everyone's there. You know, yeah. That you're not truant, that you're, you know, not sick, <laughs> you know, I don't know, not, you're not doing drugs behind the school or whatever. Uh, but, you know, I remember in homeroom of sixth grade, like Ultimate Warrior returning at WrestleMania A, the barber shop, things that happened in early 1992. That was to actual topics of discussion in homeroom among me and some of my classmates. Yeah. As we get to the fall and it's a new school year, I remember like kind of like shouting over in class to what a, a guy I knew I liked that I knew liked wrestling. I was like, hey, man, you go to Survivor Series a couple weeks? And he like kind of like didn't want me to say that out loud, it seemed. Oh, no. It got that yeah. bad. Yeah, and I, you know what? That guy was kind of a tool anyway. So, you know, <laughs> I have no shame. Um, but yeah, th this was, and, and you know, when we get to WrestleMania 9, I'll retell the story. I know I've told, maybe I've told it on here before. I don't think I have. I've told it on Top Rope Nation I know, many times about uh, when I was in home act and some kid in my class, again, in seventh grade, made fun of me wearing a WrestleMania 9 shirt and I got one over on him. We'll talk <laughs> about that a different time. But yeah, for me, Seventh grade, the fall of 1992, is when I, as a uh, then 12-year-old, realized, yeah, the wow. WWF's popularity is declining. Like, it was just like, it was not something people were talking about, really, in class. I mean, it's not like it was, like, the number one thing people talked about. But it was something that, you know, people that I knew we talked freely about. And then it just seemed, you know, for whatever reason, well, there's a lot of reasons. We've gone through them. Certainly go back and check the archives. It just wasn't as popular. And... Uh, we're going to get through a lot of numbers that uh, support why it wasn't as popular, not just in Cleveland, but uh, throughout the United States of America. And on that note, Dave Meltzer in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter noted he was surprised Cleveland got Survivor Series 1992 as house show numbers had been pretty bad for a while here. Uh, mm. And I started thinking about that. I hadn't been to a house show since early 89. Jesus. So I... It, it, you know, it wasn't like a conscious thing. You know, it was my uncle and his wife at the time. They would take me. My uncle, I think maybe, yeah, as a matter of fact, he did. He got divorced around this time. <laughs> so maybe that played a role. Why, yeah, it's, <laughs> may have. But it's funny, and I told this story to, uh, I think I told it on the when I was on with Frank Pettiani in the Pro Wrestling Torch covering Survivor Series 92, its 30th anniversary. And I kind of guilted my uncle to bringing me and my brother to Survivor Series. <laughs> I was like at a family gathering. I kept talking about, oh, Survivor Series is in Cleveland. And then like, we, I wasn't scheduled to go. And then all of a sudden my uncle like called up my parents. He's like, oh, I'll take the kids. Because my, my parents hate wrestling. That, that, that there's a zero percent chance they'd ever take me. And then I found out like a couple weeks later that like my grandma kind of like bullied my uncle into taking us. My uncle had no inclination. <laughs> but he's, and she's like, come on, the kids really want to go. Take them. And I, I kind of yeah, I felt guilty about that. Ah, uh, the grandmother. They they, they are. They work behind the scenes, man. Yeah. But, um, you know, survive. another just quick note here before we get started with the television and whatnot. And, and uh, this section's big surprise. Mm -hmm. Survivor Series coming here to Cleveland is actually how I learned of the Randy Savage Elizabeth divorce. Oh, okay. And th this will, I stress, appeal to no more than 
three people listening to this podcast. <laughs> but we're going to tell the story anyway because we like to leave no stone unturned. It was via the local radio that I heard about this. So uh, Randy Savage called in to the like the popular morning drive time radio show in Cleveland. Okay. Uh, Jeff Kinsbach and Ed Flash Ferris for you Holy three shit. people living in Cleveland. Okay, there's a couple names from the past. And they were like asking him, they're like, hey, Randy, whatever happened to Miss Elizabeth? And Randy's like, yeah, we got divorced, brother. And it was like very awkward. <laughs> and I was, I remember listening. I was like, oh, okay. Mm. Uh, th that's where she went. And on that note, I uncovered, as, as I mentioned in the last episode, Liam, uh, I have all of the WWF magazines from this era. Yeah. And I was leafing through the ones that pertain to the months we're talking about today. And wouldn't you know, in the Newsbeat column, this was in the no December 92 issue. We had a personal message from Randy Savage to his fans. They they would write uh, in the magazine, for several months, fans have speculated over the marital status of Macho Man Randy Savage and Elizabeth. Now, WWF Magazine sadly reports that the couple has divorced. Wow. Understandably, both parties wish to conduct this most personal of processes privately. However, with the divorce finalized, Savage expressed a need to communicate directly and honestly with his many followers. Here is the handwritten statement he delivered to the publication. Oh, my God. So it's a, it's a little note written in cursive. I don't know if this is the exact note or whatever, but he Randy <laughs> writes, It is a fact that Elizabeth and I are divorced, and I would like to go on record right now to say that this is nobody's fault. It's just one of those things that didn't work out. <laughs> the next thing I want to say is, Elizabeth, I know you're out there and reading this. She's, of course, a subscriber to WF Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> Please remember that in my heart, I will always love you. Randy Savage. I did not remember that this was Oh, pretty. man. I'm really sad that he didn't at least blame Hulk Hogan to some degree. Yeah, well, that, I believe, comes in a later issue. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll have to uh, stay tuned, folks. We're going to be covering 93 and 94 here on Squared Circle. Yes, that, but, uh, um, Liam, it's time to, for you to answer a question, though, because Jeez. we have a listener question from one of my co-hosts uh, on Top Rope Nation, the esteemed Justin Joint. He listened to part four, and he wanted to ask you something. Uh, we talked, obviously, about um, Ric Flair being left off the card at SummerSlam, mm -hmm. and in the newsletters, they're like, well, it's not as big a deal as you think because Flair wasn't really a household name in the UK. But we also talked about WCW having a prime TV slot yes. over in the UK. So... Justin Joint wants to know, Liam, how is Ric Flair not a household name in the UK if WCW had a prime TV slot? Right. So that is an awesome question. So the deal is that WCW got on the air with ITV in, I want to say, 89 or 90. 90 is the number that rings in my head, but they actually might have been in some regional areas in 89. But it was only a late night slot when they first got on ITV. It was like half one in the morning or something like that. The move to Saturday afternoon was because they were doing well in the late night position. So they put them in what was the traditional world of sport time slot. Saturday afternoons, they aimed for like three, four o'clock, but it was kind of dependent on, on other sports and when they ended. And the giant rating success came when they moved to Saturday afternoon. And that move came after Flair had already gone to the WWF. So uh -huh. even though, uh, you know, it really was like around the time of the Dangerous Alliance when the, uh, the, the TV moved to Saturday afternoons and the ratings exploded. Okay. So there you go. There you have it. There you have it, Just Justin. Okay. Um. We're going to get into this, I think, again here, part five of 1990. Yes. Let's remind the people of our journey thus far. Uh, when we began in 1990, Liam, we 
asked ourselves, was the decline of the World Wrestling Federation inevitable or could it have been changed? And, and you know, throughout 1990, I think there were certainly some things uh, that could have been changed for the better mm-hmm. creatively. But uh, once we hit 1991, scandal. It's trouble. Yes. Uh, George Zahorian, steroids. Underage Cole. Ring, yeah, underage ring boys. You never want that in your headlines. Uh, that no. did make the uh, uh, exploiting the Persian Gulf War. All of that mm-hmm. made the decline inevitable. And as we hit the summer of 92, business completely nosedived in a way uh, that had never been seen before. Wouldn't be seen again until uh, probably the uh, summer of, of 2001, uh, yep. a decade later. But you touched on it. Liam, in our last part, after we got done with SummerSlam, we left off uh, with a title switch as Randy Savage dropped the title back to Ric Flair. Do you want to catch up the people on, on kind of where we stand right now? Or is there anything yeah, you'd like so to add? That, I mean, no, I mean that, that really was it. You know, the, the decision was made. Savage's run is over. Right, you know, Razor Ramones vignettes had aired. This was really the first big thing Razor was involved in. It was, you know, costing Savage the title. Flair gets it back. They do the angle afterwards where Razor kind of puts the boots to Savage's knee, Warrior comes out for the save and carries him off in a over-the-threshold style manner that kind of, um, you know, sees their love soaring as a result, apparently. But uh, yeah, so that's where we are. Ric Flair's the champ, and it looks like Savage is uh, kind of out of the top position. Yeah, and, you know, uh, again, business bottoms out in the summer, we talk about, and we started port four, if memory serves me correct, Liam, by letting the listeners know that, in the next several episodes, we're always going to start with kind of a big sea change move by the promotion. They really, that they don't stick with the pad hand. They, they try new yes. things, um, hard right turns, if you will. Last episode, it was moving SummerSlam from Landover, Maryland to Wembley Stadium. And with that, we once again start part five with a major shakeup because times they are a change in Liam and on October 12th in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Bret Hart beats Ric Flair for the WWE title clean via the sharpshooter. And while at the end of our last episode, we mentioned that Bret was getting the biggest pops on the European tour, this WWF title change probably more than any in history feels like it came almost completely out of right field. And it's another one that doesn't air on first run television. Oh, by the way. Yeah, which which I want to touch on in a second. I mean, it's even it's even shocking looking at this timeline of events back. Granted, I mean, we are not living this in real time. Obviously, we are going back and watching these clips and these bits and pieces of television. And even doing that, Bret Hart goes from not really giving a shit and not putting over Papa Shango's supposed curse that cost him the, the Intercontinental title at SummerSlam and not really having much else going on to all of a sudden it's like, oh, by the way, Bret Hart is world champ. And it it's literally it feels like overnight. And it's especially jarring when you do watch this back because when you consider that the TV in September and October is very repetitive and quite, and quite dull, not maybe to the extreme levels of negativity that we saw after WrestleMania 8, but it's not too far off in terms of how repetitive it is. And then all of a sudden, Brett's the champ, only himself told the day of the show that this was going to be happening after being told the day before to fly uh, to Saskatoon early. And that point that you made at the end, I didn't really, you know, another title change that didn't air on first on television, that seemed, that's a, you know, when you're going to go with a new guy and you need to elevate this guy to the top, the fact they didn't air it really on television is kind of a big surprise. Yeah, it never aired on primetime. 
Yeah, it's it, it, it smack them, whack them. German fan favorites. Uh, let's not get into that. Uh, Brett Hitman Hart, <laughs> his greatest matches and WWE's top 50 superstars of all time. So let's go back to this. Another title change. Yeah. When the uh, Mountie beat Bret Hart for the Intercontinental title at the start of the year, we noted that was the first WWF title change that did not occur on first-run television since Savage Santana on February yep. 86. How many have there been alone now in 92? Mountie over Brett, Money Inc. over the Disaster, or Money Inc. over LOD, uh, Disasters over Money Inc., and then this one. Oh, and then Savage over Flair wasn't for, like, yeah, they, they, they aired that on primetime in a, a feeble attempt to boost the ratings of that show. Yep. But they already told you that the title changed. Yes, this is this is uh, this is to the point now where it's like you during a period of time where you really need to be establishing these new guys. Not airing it seems like a, I mean I, again you could almost hear the mentality of the time where it's like but you know we don't want to give it away you know and you know we're going to be putting this on the house show so but still it's like you, you know it's really more important to establish Brett here and to not do that I feel is a peculiar move. Now they obviously showed highlights of it. Yes, they did. Uh, they, sh- they showed. Uh, Flair submitting, they show Brett celebrating, but very brief stuff. The the full match doesn't air. I, I want to go back to another point that I had in there. Certainly up to this point in time, this feels like the most out-of-nowhere WWE title change we've ever seen, right? And, and really even, well, I mean, in the modern era, there's you're going to get a lot of contenders, you know, rolled up. But, like, they always did something before uh, a guy, and there weren't many WWE title changes, to be fair, or uh, during this time period. But, I mean, this just, I mean, you go back to, like, national expansion, and even before, you anticipated the babyface mm-hmm. winning. This was just like, you turned on TV, and we're going to get to it in a minute, you turned on TV one day, and as you said, oh my goodness, Bret Hart's the world champion. Yep, like someone just snapped their fingers, and that's just the way it is now, which actually is pretty much what happened. I mean, there, there are ones that follow this that, you know, you can kind of see that they're building a guy up to a degree. Diesel comes to mind. But at the same time, it's like this being the first one like this is so much more jarring. And and Brett being so atypical of a WWF main event guy also makes it very, very jarring. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, there's a lot to this that we're going to get into. Yeah, and I'm 12 years old at this time. And let me just talk about my reaction in real time. This is <laughs> quite the story. I'm in one of those, like... Uh, TV, like the stores that just sells a lot of electronic appliances. Yeah. This was pre Best Buy. Um, And you would go into these places, and and Best Buy, I guess, was kind of this too, but you would like walk around and they'd have a bunch of like big screen TVs just chilling on the floor and they'd have various shows on just so you could see what it was like, I guess, what what the, you know, it looked like, how how the TV looked like. And we're walking, and I remember my brother and I, we were there, my parents took us, obviously. And we're just kind of like meandering around the store. I don't know what the hell my parents were buying. And my brother comes running up to me and he's like, dude, you are not going to believe who the new WWF champion is. I said, excuse me. He's like, yeah, on the TV over there. It's on. I said, who? He goes, Bret Hart. I go, what? Wow. That is how I learned of Bret Hart being the WWF champion. I was in a television store and my brother <laughs> happened to catch superstars on one of the televisions and i ran over and i watched it and i you know again you use the word jarring i believe and i will co-sign that it was jarring in real time mm-hmm. to turn on wf television hear about this change yeah 
huge huge i mean for myself this was around the time when i was still kind of becoming a fan so it wasn't as as jarring to me personally because by the time i was really following the wf i just understood brett was champ didn't seem like a massive stretch to me because my introduction was SummerSlam where brett was in the main event anyway so it was just like okay so brett beat flair okay i see but like i can imagine you know, i had not been watching for the previous you know six years like you had so i can only imagine how uh, how i mean and what was your kind of other than being just stunned and surprised, what was your initial like thoughts about Brett as the champ? I constantly, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, thought he was going to just like lose all the time. Like not, <laughs> not, 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 not to some of the schlubs he wrestles at first, but like I remember like just always being like, yeah, I don't know. And, um, you know, a couple things here. One, I, I can hear my good friends at Top Rope Nation, Ryan Drosty and Justin Joy getting very upset at me because I'm not being that complimentary of Bret Hart, it seems. But I'm going to tease here. With the benefit of hindsight, I have a different path how Bret should have become WWF champion eventually. And I will fully reveal that in part one of our 1993 series when we do a little fantasy rebook of WrestleMania. Yes, a little teaser, folks. Hey, these yes. shows are free. We can tease things on the next time. We don't need to just give them all <laughs> right away. We will tease you. You'll, uh, just you know, stick with us into 1993. But, you know... With the benefit of hindsight, as I look back now as a 42-year-old, Brett winning the title in October of 92 right on the heels of losing at SummerSlam, which was his most high-profile match mm. to that point, to me, it's kind of like akin to Randy Savage winning his first WWF title, had he won his first WWF title, without the Mega Powers deal happening in between. There yeah. was just no... You know, and we criticize WWF, especially in the modern times of... of uh, telling and not showing enough, yes. right? But you do sort of need to have that moment where it's obvious to everyone that this guy is now a main eventer. And Brett yeah. really didn't have that between the loss at SummerSlam and the WF title win, which is what I think hurt it, not just in the moment, but moving forward. Yeah, I could, I, I could not agree more with that. I think that the, there has to be some transition from seeing a guy at one level to seeing a guy at the next level and i don't i typically don't like it i mean when you have a guy who you are clearly positioning in the top mix with the top guys you can do it but when it's again brett's you know in the in the realm of again the bulldog before sometimes papa shango who is moving down the car that's not a transition that for, for, for me in terms of like moving from one to the other this was so out of nowhere and I know, like you say, you're, we're going to talk about this a lot in part one of 1993, your fancy rebook of WrestleMania. And there is an interesting discussion to be had, as we will get to, about building a guy for the role as opposed to just making the move. Yes. Um, you know, and, and you know, I use Savage as an example there. You know, like if he had just won the WF title in the, you know, in the late without the, you know, getting Hogan's kind of endorsement first, you know, a slightly more modern um, example. Look at Steve Austin. Okay. We all knew coming off WrestleMania 13, he was the guy, but he gets injured and he had those like seminal moments, mm -hmm. stunning Vince McMahon in the garden, yeah. you know, uh, the bit with Mike Tyson, which just, it just made it as clear as day. This man is a main eventer. And, you know, to be Brett B. Piper at Mania, or uh, so, I mean, that was something, I mean, that was a big deal. I mean, it was Ronnie Piper's first clean pinfall loss on television since 84. But you know, I, I just, I, you know, I, I don't know if it was enough. 
I, I just, I just don't, and we're gonna, and we're gonna get into it. Stuff that Dave and Wade were saying. At oh this yeah. Time. Um, it, you know, I, I think most people, if you're being fair, would agree that that Brett needed something to happen, kind of in between, to let everyone know he was the guy, as opposed to us just turning on television one day and oh my god, he's got the WWE title. <laughs> he's the guy now. Yeah. yeah, and that's it. You hit the nail on the head. Brett was already being treated as a key player, but the gap from what he was, even with the Piper win, to the role that he was supposed to fill successfully, if you think about like, Hope, you know, okay, the, the idea that Vince would have this new type of guy is to get him to the level that you know previous great successful champions have been. And to go from where Brett was to where Brett was supposed to get to as a success, that feels vast. Yes. Now, one positive here. This, this especially becomes obvious as you watch the television throughout these several months that we mm-hmm. did. Brett was not Savage or Warrior, obviously. Two previous Hogan fill-ins that were no longer serviceable as Hogan fill-ins. And to me, that's a big positive. This was someone new. And the product does feel fresher once Brett gets the belt. Sidebar, Savage, as I thought about this more and more, Savage and Warrior on top in 92 with Hogan gone it reminded me a bit of like Triple H and Undertaker in O2. Oh. Where, where it's like Rock and Austin aren't around, but hey, here were the guys that were in the mix with them. This yep. brings you this brings you back the warm feelings, right? Right? <laughs> you know? And that that's really what it feel those two felt like in retrospect. And while Brett wasn't a known commodity, he may not have had that, you know minting moment as a main eventer before winning the title. I think it's a positive that he felt fresh and was someone new on top because this promotion desperately needed that, Liam. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, a couple of things here. First of all, I absolutely love, love Kyle, that comparison with Savage and Warrior and I to, to Triple H and take her a decade later because it is that thing of like two guys in both cases who were in the mix with the top guys during a strong period, but they were passengers. They weren't the driver. Yes, in, in, in the in, in in the reason why the company was as hot as it was. Not to say they didn't have moments of success away from them, but it's just the point when you take that driving influence away and it's down to the passengers to make it work. Like you said, it feels like these are two people who have been substitutions for Hogan in in you know one form or another. You know whether it was because he was absent or because they were trying to make a new Hogan in the Warrior. But these were guys that they ultimately went back to Hogan. And mm-hmm. now Hogan's not there. It's just the guys left. And that dynamic is is really tough as the guys who like were really not able to fill Hogan's shoes from even from a storyline perspective. Um, and it's, I mean, historically it's hard to, to immediately follow a mega baby face anyway, but in terms of Brett being something new, it does make this promotion feel very, very different. I mean, and there's a lot that makes this promotion feel different as we'll talk about, but Brett getting it definitely puts a new twist and a new dynamic on the promotion that they haven't really had before. Yeah, and uh, let's ask this question right now. I think it's a good time to ask it before we get into Brett, his portrayal on TV, what they do with them. Was there anyone else they could have gone with other than Brett as the world champion? I think think Brett's the best pick. But the the one that stands out to me that they, I don't think, considered is the one that they go with very shortly, after they switch sides, you know, in order to switch sides in times of a crisis, and that's Mr. Perfect. Because they were expecting back any minute anyway. 
He also had the non-steroid look, which I think was a qualification for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he had the built-in story with Ric Flair and Flair's champ. So if you were panicking, you could see why they might think to go with Perfect. Now, given that they were looking to make this switch as soon as possible, for reasons we'll get into, the logic says you don't want in an ideal world to rush the split of Perfect and Flair. They only do that in the end out of complete necessity, as we're going to talk about. <laughs> but I understand why that would not have been their first instinct. And I also kind of understand why they you know, wouldn't have wanted to take the chance with Mr. Perfect. Although having said that, when you when you consider the guys that apparently they were considering, the fact that Perfect doesn't seem to be an option is uh, is interesting to me. Yes, folks, Mr. Perfect comes back. We will touch on that later. But we've heard about this infamous list of five Mm. right from variety sources like oh there's a list of five names uh that uh titan was considering to put the world title on bruce pritchard apparently in a podcast said it was brett tito santana (laughs) ted dibiase (laughs) savage and the warrior yeah i you know i've I've heard various stories about this list over the years from different you know, different interviews and stuff that you listen to. And I'm, I'm never really sure if there's ever going to be like a a definitive person saying, this is what the list was, because it's just a nice piece of wrestling lore. Tito Santana, the guy that <laughs> got slaughtered in the dark match by Papa Sean at Wembley, like... Well, yeah, like, so we talked about that. When was that, the match in Barcelona against The Undertaker where he was getting that insane reaction? Oh, yeah, that was, that was pre-Matador. Yeah, but here's the thing. Dude, I, I don't... It's nice that he got that big, right? The idea of putting the world title... Again, Tino has talked about this. That, like, oh, if they were going to expand to, like, South America instead of Canada, they, I was going to be the guy. Dude, let me tell you something. The idea of putting the world title on Tino Santana in 1992 seems absolutely fucking dire. That- <laughs> That's an awful idea, but I think that pin which sums up my feelings and, a lot better. And, and Savage and Warrior, you know, Bruce said they were on the list. That seems odd. Yeah, Warrior. I buy that. Well, I Warrior that. because what we're about to get into, and Savage because he just flopped as the champion. So, so, yeah, so that, that's why I don't buy Savage. Why would Savage be in consideration? Savage is like, the, you just took it off him for a reason. Yeah. So well, I don't, he, I mean, he, I, I can't, having said that, I, be, I can believe the list. Just because I, I, I mean, and when you look at that list, I mean, Brett just stands out. It's so obviously the candidate yes. to win. And, but I'm surprised because I'd always heard that Crush was on the list previously. Oh. So I was surprised that he wasn't on it just because, well, Tito's on. So if they're going to, you know, but hey, whatever, who knows? Maybe it's just that it's a, one of those wrestling myths that isn't true. But again, yeah. you could see big guy, not necessarily a juiced up look. And, uh, you know, maybe they, they, you know, maybe they were keen on him. Who knows? Yeah, well, old Shaka Bra hasn't been around too much recently, I feel like. He was kind Not of persona non Yeah. Uh, what about Undertaker? Yeah, noticeably missing from that list. And again, one of those things that I think is kind of telling in the sense that you kind of read from that, what I think is kind of common knowledge anyway, that the company never wanted to lead with him and maybe felt that they couldn't lead with him. From a, Again, and this is going to this is gonna become part of our discussion about the portrayal of Brett, but the way that Taker you know, has to conduct himself doesn't really lend to what I think Vince wants out of a champion. Speaking of Bruce Pritchard, Liam, The Undertaker, mm-hmm. he's an attraction. Oh, yeah. He's, he, <laughs> That's he's what Bruce un- always says. Like, whenever there's, like, a, like a shitty gimmick, that be, an Undertaker's not a shitty gimmick at this time, but, like, whatever, like, that, that's always his go-to crutch phrase, I think, mm. when, like, you know, people are like, oh, that's not something you can lead with, and Bruce is like, well, it's an attraction. To who? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. To, to Vince, I guess. But um, 
I got to get this is something I pulled from the pro wrestling torch and I thought this was silly, but we need to talk about (laughs) Wade Keller speculated about a possible trade between the WWF and WCW where WWF would send Ric Flair, Shawn Michaels and Ted DiBiase to WCW in exchange for Sting and Sting would come over and be the world champion. I don't think that wrestling business works that way. One, uh, two, do you think Sting could have been a guy to turn around Titans fortunes at this time? So I got to say, if <laughs> the idea that Tito Santana as champion is fucking dire in your words, yeah. this trade, yeah, <laughs> let's trade, let's get Sting and trade all the heels he could work with at the same time. So I guess, I, I guess you're looking for a lot of Sting and Razor because that's what's left. Uh, yeah, I don't think that Sting would have been the guy to turn around Titan's fortunes, though he would have been good in the role and he probably would have suited Vince more than Brett did in terms of what he would think of a champion to be. And I always, you know, I always feel like comparing how Sting did as champion in WCW in 1990, considered a failure, was never really fair because that kind of prisoner of the moment thinking deems him a failure because business was terrible and the ideas sucked. Um, but there were bigger picture issues with WCW as a product that impeded their growth until Hogan and Nitro, realistically speaking. So while this would have been interesting, I think kind of the same parameters apply here. I don't know if anybody was going to turn this around given what had been going on. So whilst thing may have been a nicer fit, I don't think it's actually going to make a tangible difference. And, you know, another issue that comes to my mind when I think about if they could have possibly brought Sting in in the fall of 92, going from the homegrown painted face guy, ultimate word, to the opposition's painted face guy would have mm, been all right. Yeah. Right? It's like, yeah. oh, okay, well, let's bring in, like, this other paint. Like, I, I don't know. And, yeah, again, and we saw how Vince used Flair. I like, would he have used Sting properly? I mean, we know how Vince, you know, create other people's creations. We know how he tended not to. Um, he would have messed with him. He would have yeah. messed with him so bad. Yeah. Square, what is it? Square pegs, round holes or whatever. That's it. Um, so, all right, let's get back to Brett. Uh, per history of WWE.com, which is such an invaluable resource in doing these it things. Is. At the LA Sports Arena on October 10th, which is two days before the title change in Saskatoon. They list this. Bret Hart defeated WWF World Champion Ric Flair via disqualification at 23 minutes and 45 seconds when Flair pushed the referee. The referee didn't signal for the bell until he regained his senses and Hart had Flair in the sharpshooter, with fans initially thinking the title had changed hands. Flair left ringside with the title and Hart was declared the winner, but it was not specified that it was by disqualification. Mm. A local news outlet announced later that night that Hart had won the title. <laughs> Uh, I love it. Dusty finish. Uh, Interesting timing on this, as we'll get to later. I think that this may have been a dry run that Brett didn't realize was a dry run. Uh, Yeah, maybe. And let's, yeah, that's it. Yeah, keep that in mind about what what Liam said, what's interesting on October 10th, because we're Mm going to get back to that date again in a minute. But let's have up the portrayal of Brett Hart on television. And, you know, he wins the title and, and what they do with them. There's the Tom Petty music video, uh, yeah. making some noise off uh, the <laughs> album Into the Great Wide Open. That uh, The famous singles off that album were uh, Learning to Fly and the, the title track for those keeping score at home that know they're petty. Uh, not the first time WF used Tom Petty, by the way. No, video. no. Jake Roberts got to gotta go. Oh, you don't care, you I sly do. dog, you. Okay, <laughs> they used uh, Jamming Me was the name of the song. Uh, this is when Jake was, I'm assuming, because it was 87, 
And I'm assuming it was when Jake was returning to TV off his Coke suspension. Yeah. That's why they did a random music video for him in 87 to Tom Petty. Yeah. I, I, I imagine so. But I just remember I, I saw this a while back. And I think it's to do like the banning of the DDT or Jimmy Hart trying to ban the DDT or something like that. Yes. I love that video. Oh, that's great stuff. Yeah. There was a great video of Mid-South, too, for Jake Roberts to Rats Lay It Down. Oh, God. <laughs> what a great name for a song for Jake. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, um, okay, Brett, um, you know, in addition. So that, the Tom Petty, Petty video is really good. It is very good. It is very okay. good. And this is the kind of stuff they need to be doing. Yes. Um, now, how Brett is talked about and positioned, it's very much as a workhorse type of champion, which does play to his strengths, and it's a solid juxtaposition to Hogan. But... Liam, I've never bought being a workhorse as a star-making device. I always think of the ultimate failure in that, which was Roman Reigns' very sorry, I'm always here bit that backfired spectacularly at WrestleMania 34 against Brock Lesnar. And the other thing with Brett, the list of names he was beating while, while they keep telling you on television, oh, no one's defending the title more. No one's defending the title more. Well, who's he beating? Mountie. Rick Martel, Berserker, Papa Shango on Saturday night's main event. Yes, there's a Saturday night's main event, people. And Virgil? <laughs> That's right, Virgil. <laughs> um, and it also needs to be pointed out, this is maybe me being nitpicky, okay? The WWF champion always defended the title multiple times per week. It was just the houses, not necessarily TV. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's 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 very much uh, again. This is it's it's a promotional directive that they. It's almost like an acknowledgement. Okay, and, and there's a few of these. Brett, we know Bret Hart's not like the other guys you're used to seeing in this role. So we're going to focus on the things that you know. Again, even if it's even if it, you have to use a little bit of a pro wrestling liberty with the truth, you can't. You have to do what you have to do. But again, like you say, Berserker. Shango, Virgil. I did like how he won the Berserker and Virgil matches without much difficulty. Like, it really <laughs> was like, it was very much deliberately done to show him being above the pack. Now, that being said, an early issue with this reign when you're watching it in the perception is that he's working, like, yeah, that list of names there, he's working with the same guys he worked with before. And he mm. is involved in the top issue. Um, things do get noticeably better for the vibe of Brett's champ, as we'll talk about after Survivor Series when he gets out of the range of this guy's. But you know, the rush nature of the move, it does hurt and that he doesn't get to hit the ground running. He remains secondary, which is never a good look for a new champion. And and keeping him in the sphere of the guys he was already with, it's almost like, you hate to say it, it's almost like, and again, I know, you know this is not about Brett as, as, as a criticism of him, but it almost feels like bringing the belt down as opposed to bringing Brett up because he's working with the same crew yeah, of guys. Yeah, that's a good um, point. And on the workhorse point, I'm not sure why promoters think it makes somebody more special by telling the fans that they're part of the furniture all the time. Um, yeah, actively normalizing them. Yeah, actively normalizing Going out of your, their, your way to make him... And by the way, this guy's not like those ones that you consider special. That just seems like a very strange thing to do. His promos as champion are strikingly different to his predecessors anyway. Um, it, so it, that, that kind of that issue of normalizing is something that, to me, you'd be doing everything to avoid as opposed to focusing on the famous one from around this period of time, the famous promo is the sit down in the park with Vince at Survivor Series Showdown. <laughs> what a tire those two had on. <laughs> why, why, Bret Hart, yeah, goddamn, I love Bret Hart, but why he thought he could wear cowboy boots like that? I have no idea. And Vince's jacket is just unspeakable. But uh, 
you know, in this promo, that like, they're outright comparing him to past WWF champions. And Vince is asking him, you know, compare yourself to these previous champions. And Brett, you know, does the typical thing talking about how he respects them all, but he's not as flamboyant as Flair. He's not as big as Hogan. He doesn't do a lot of fancy talking, but he's the best. And, you know, I do my talking in the ring. And it's like you can almost hear what Vince is thinking, which is, fucking hell. <laughs> Yeah. Now, yeah, I know you're not like our previous champions, but man, we kind of because this again, this is this sounds like a criticism of Brett as a promo. Brett can do good promos, but he needs an issue. He's not like Hogan, who could just backstroke out of the camera shot and get away with it, or Flair, or Warrior, or Savage with their personality and their delivery. It's so over the top that that's kind of what makes them. Brett is very if there's an issue, as we saw, yeah, you know, the day, the promo is built to SummerSlam with Davey were not bad promos for Brett at all. No. No. He's good, but he needs something to talk about. He can't just, you know, sit there and talk about, you know, and that's it. Like, you know, in the, a lot of the promos building up Survivor Series and the match that we're going to talk about soon, it's a lot about him, you know, comparing himself and his skill and his wrestling moves. And it's like, this is just very unlike what we're used to. I'm so glad you brought that up because I have mentioned this before to my top rope nation co-host, Ryan Justin, before mm-hmm. with Bret Hart. You know, they love Bret. I love Bret, for the record, okay? Likewise. But here's the thing. I actually, and... We'll get into this when we go further into 93. I didn't get really, really super into Bret Hart until the middle of 1993 in the Jerry Lawler feud. And it's because of something you just hit on. He never really, if you look back at his career, his WF career, before the Lawler feud, he never was involved in a personal grudge. No. And and that's what always sells me on the characters is kind of how they, you know, operate, you know, opposite somebody well think like, about this kyle think about this real quick one of your formulate moments as a fan is what savage and steamboat yes and why and, and why it's like this guy just freaking you know he i think he swallowed his tongue <laughs> you, know, you know brett never swallowed his tongue no he never got which to. is good because he can always pronounce his e's unlike ricky steamboat for a month <laughs> but you, you brought up that interview liam um Vince did point out that Brett brought a, quote, new humility to the title and did get a chuckle when Brett said he, quote, didn't have 24-inch arms. I don't know if he was <laughs> chuckling because of the steroid issue or just <laughs> chuckling in general, but uh, uh, that was a, a takeaway I had from that. I also love the reason for the Virgil match. You know, we both scoffed at Bret Hart defending the other title against Virgil. I don't know if you caught this on the television. I did. Okay, this was great. So... Their height, it's a completely out of nowhere match they do on Superstars. Or was it, I can't remember if it was Superstars or Challenge now. It is on one of the shows. But Brett says, hey, I'm picking up all of Ric Flair's contracted title defenses. That means I have to defend against Virgil. I have to have this random match. I like that a lot. I do too. I'm not going to hide behind the belt, he says. Yes, I remember that. So yep. That was good, even if he had to wrestle Virgil. Uh, so <laughs> we, we we're kind of picking apart. This title change a little bit. Some people, you know, again, my, my good friends from Top Probation may be slamming their fists down in disgust right now. But to be fair, Brett, this title change and the fact it came out of nowhere, likely a result of two different things. How it was spent, how uh, sort of the the decision making uh, was sped up here. One, there was a legit injury that Ric Flair suffered his eardrum. This caused vertigo, uh, mm-hmm. I guess. And this was actually acknowledged on television, which stunned me. I did not remember that. Yeah, me either. Warrior potatoes him on a house yeah. show. Uh, Vince does bring it. Perfect says that if it were true, he'd know about it. Um, <laughs> doesn't really deny it. <laughs> Classic yeah. politician move. 
But yeah, and it's actually curious when we talk about this injury because Brett was told about that list of new potential champions. We talked about the list of five on September 21st at the Winnipeg tapings. And Flair's injury is October 8th. So even without this, Flair clearly is not long for the belt anyway. Well, and yeah, as we talked about on our last episode, if it wasn't hard, it, it, it certainly seemed like it was going to be Ultimate Warrior. Yeah, in, in the in the build-up, as soon as they do the, you know, the move to Flair, Savage and Warrior are doing promos together, very much focusing on Warrior as the ultimate contender for the world title. Yes, and speaking of the Ultimate Warrior, let's get into that, because if people remember part four at the end of the episode, yes, it was very much... Flair and Warrior was going to be the next world title program. And then out of nowhere, Bret Hart's the world champion. So let's get into why that happened here. A situation with the mm-hmm. Ultimate Warrior. Uh, this is before his, he leaves. Spoiler alert. Uh, it seemed the old contract issues were arising again, Liam, uh, in the early fall of 1992 with Jim Helwig. Yeah, these these flare up from time to time. And there's, there's a lot going on that we're going to talk about in a second. And, and it's also key to note, too that the Warrior Flair house show program, as it got going, according to Meltzer, he says, and this is a quote, it's consistently drawn surprisingly weak houses, even trailing the generally weak houses of the Savage Ramon program. Mm. And Ramon hasn't been around long at this point. Going into the fall, Meltzer says, the Savage Ramon program looked to be the major question mark at the gate, which it has been, but it appeared that Flair and Warrior for the title would at least do average business. So... Yeesh. Yeah, not yes. good. And of course, like you say, so with, with this not doing well and there being contract problems or problems with the Warrior. Yeah, so about that second issue with the <laughs> Ultimate Warrior speeding yeah. speeding a title change to Bret Hart up. Well, we are going, going gone, Liam, He's because done. the Ultimate Warrior and Davy Boy Smith are both gone for still being on the gas. Uh, at the time, this was reported as a fired quit situation where, you know, WWE saying we fired him. Both guys are saying we quit. But per Brett's book, both guys were receiving HGH from some Mark doctor in England. Uh, there's some, <laughs> We'll get into this because I, I wrote this question before I did more research. I, I wrote the notes. Did Warrior fail a steroid test in September? Please add anything you know. So <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about those steroid tests in a second. But Brett, as you would expect, is in the right. His, his, his infallible memory and his uh, record keeping is correct. Warrior would sue the WWF in 1993, and he sued him for like $6 million. And in his timeline of events, he says that on or around October 10th, 1992, Helwig tells McMahon of his unsuccessful attempt to obtain human growth hormone. Now, if that date rings a bell, two days, that is, before the title switch to Brett on October 12th, and that October 10th itself is the day they did the false title switch in LA. So while Brett is told the next day to go to Saskatoon because they're going to do the title change, the day before Brett gets told to go, they did that, what seems like a dry run of, let's just see what the reaction to this is, and let's see if it works. And when it does, that that convinces, I, I think, it convinces Vince... Yes, okay, we'll go with Brett because October 10th, Warrior breaks this news to him. And as the story goes, even though Warrior kind of denies buying the HGH in the lawsuit, uh, says it never actually, uh, successful purchase never took place, Brett says that when Vince uh, called Davey to fire him, he called Brett first and told him ahead of time he was going to have to fire them both because what Warrior said was Vince, you know, telling Vince of an unsuccessful attempt was actually the Ultimate Warrior telling Vince that the Mark Doctor in England got busted 
and him and Davy Boy were clients, so that may pose a problem. And it's here that we may want to note, and we will note, I guess, uh, that the feds, the Justice Department, around this time began snooping around WWF. Mm-hmm. And the newsletter reporting somewhat ominous, <laughs> not knowing really exactly what the feds were looking for. Uh, I believe Dave at one point said, probably drunks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which which gave me a chuckle. But, um, you know, interesting, you mentioned the lawsuit Warrior had against WWF in 93. In that lawsuit, he claimed Vince was violating his own drug policy. I can believe that, yeah. Uh, which is uh, brings another chuckle here. So, you know, you, you kind of tie these things together. This firing of the Warrior and Davey Boy, obviously the company already had a lot of heat from steroids. Oh, but- yeah. With the Justice Department and they, you know, looking, you know, if it's being reported in the newsletters, WWF's aware of it. With them, you got to 86 them, right? Yeah, so, you got to. So regardless if Warrior was drawing with Flair or not, you know, you know, him and Davey got to go, I guess. Yeah, and there's, and there's a lot going on here, too, because it's, it's in, you know, this happens on October 10th. Warrior is there for a while longer. He keeps working. But if you look at those newsletters around the time when Brett wins the belt, they're saying in a very kind of cryptic manner, there's a problem with the warrior. And yes. And I want to I want to get to that later. Yeah. for sure, Because because it, you're right. It's when we do this, you know, just to peel back the curtain. It's so interesting when we're reading the old observers and stuff, the old, the, what the coverage was in real time. And then you start you, you go back. It's like, all right, well, what do we know? Like, how did this shake out? And then yeah. like. Sometimes you really have to like, and I'm driving myself nuts. I'm, you know, I'm editing. <laughs> I'm editing the notes. I'm sending you ten final, ten things that say final copy and whatnot. But um, that's whatever. No one wants to hear about that. What I will tell the people though, and what I think they do want to hear about, is that 1993 lawsuit we both talked about uh, wound up being dropped uh, just hours before Titan was going to respond to it because Jim Helwig claimed that he's quote changing lawyers and no one on either side would offer any other details. Yeah, that seems peculiar, doesn't it? I believe the, the changing of lawyers went from somebody wanted to represent him to no one wanted to represent him. <laughs> uh, okay, so about the ultimate warrior failing steroid test. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you asked the question there, did he did he fail a test in September? Well, thanks to, and this is Bix's work, right? He uncovered yes. the drug test results. So God bless David Bix's fan. Absolutely. Great researcher. So he failed steroid test warrior the, not Bix. Yes, I, don't, I don't think Bix has ever failed a steroid test but i could be uh, yeah i can't be sure but warrior failed steroid tests on may 4th june 7th june 19th july 31st august 16th september the 11th and october 24th not exactly the symbol of drug-free sports entertainment i was promised by vincent man including july 31st warrior scoring a te ratio a testosterone to epitestosterone ratio of 35 to 1, which is fucking inspired because a, a normal human being is supposed to be 1 to 1, and 4 to 1 is usually considered like a test failure. So 35 to 1, that's... <laughs> that, that's nine times more than really bad, than failing. Yeah. So, um, Yeah, and remember, we talked about this in the last part that um warrior they, they kind of clued him in they're like dude we're trying to be drug free here and you're pissing yeah. dirty every time and remember he started wearing the uh the, the bodysuit mm-hmm. and, and Meltzer mentioned that him and Davey did start to shrink a little bit as time wore on they, I must this must have been after that that preposterous 35 to 1 uh TE yeah. ratio you spoke of but Liam 
for those keeping score at home now, let, let's focus on the issue here. Since WrestleMania 8, WWF has seen all of the following exit. Hogan, although it's not permanent. Piper, Jake, Sid, Kerry Von Erich, LOD, Warrior, and Davey now. That's like a Hall of Fame wing. That is insane. That is so insane. In such a short period of time, that excellent ensemble cast we were talking about at the end of 91 has just been whittled away to basically nothingness. Yeah. and Unbelievable. Let, let's stick with the, the Warrior, because I guess he's kind of the, the headliner. Obviously, we'll talk about, you know, Davey and, and his exit from the company just briefly in a little bit as well. But we somewhat defended Warrior, Liam, in 90 and 91. People yep, can go yep. back and listen to the archives. We thought maybe he, he kind of got an unfair shake. You know, there were some things working against him. But there is no denying that this 1992 comeback just did not work. Why? Oh, man. Uh you know, we kind of alluded to previously, after we were talking about WrestleMania 8, the kind of weird nature of vanishing for six months, reappearing with a different look and returning during what was, as we discussed in part three, one of the worst creative periods in the history of the company. Mm-hmm. And you, you got the bad angles for the Warrior himself. This dynamic never feels right when Warrior comes back. You know, it's like it feels like I feel like they're trying to recapture something with the Warrior. It feels like it's, yeah, recapturing seems like the word. It's like they're trying to get back what they had with the Warrior. But nothing that they're doing with the Warrior is anything like it was when the Warrior worked in the past. Does that make Did sense? The, like, like, they, like you, they, they, they brought him back and, like, the, the, the heel side is so garbage that, like, he just has, like... And we saw this before. Warrior flounders when he doesn't have a good opponent. Well, okay. And let me ask you this question, then. Did the Papa Shango feud Rick rude him? Because Just to clarify for those who, who may not be clued in, we... Liam and I were very adamant that Warriors' first world title feud with Ravishing Rick Rude in the summer of 1990 hurt Warrior a lot because it was unsuccessful and people just didn't buy it as a top-level feud for the promotion, and it just wasn't as good as Hogan and Earthquake. So was the Warrior coming back, it being this weird thing where Hogan's gone and Vince is like, yes, well, you've still got the Warrior, cheer him. And then the first feud is this disaster with Papa Shango. Did that just kill this return dead right off the rip? Uh, I, mean, I it, think I think it did. I think it okay. did. Like, I think if, it did. If he feuded with, if the Sid feud, for instance, went on as scheduled, does does Warriors return not flounder? I think it has a better chance of surviving if him if him and Sid shoot some hot angles and 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 Sid gets ramped up as a heel and Warriors got somebody to work with. I think that Warrior. Does not. It, I don't feel. I don't feel like we ever get the sense that we have now watching this, where it just feels like we're waiting for Warrior to click again, and it never happens. The Shango feud is difficult because they're trying to like you're bringing back the Warrior, and really you you should be trying to galvanize the Warrior as much as you can. But with this story, you're having the Warrior acting like a a goof, having to sell for Papa Shango to try and get this other guy over. So it's like, as opposed to it being like, okay, the focus is on the Warrior and he's going to smash Sid, but Sid's done this to him and now Warrior's coming back. It's like, we've got to buy into this stupidity with Shango who just doesn't, it doesn't work. And yeah, I just think that like, coming back to that, it just, you know, I don't think he ever really recovers. No, well, you know, I would say that the best work Warrior did in this run, really the only redeemable work was the feud with Savage leading up to SummerSlam. Pre-SummerSlam, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, When Brett gets the title... Was that a get the fuck out message to Warrior? <laughs> I, 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 you've got a good response here, and I'm, 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 let me just clarify this now. I guess 
should Warrior, because you mentioned how Warrior kind of hangs around after October 10th for a little bit. So I guess let me rephrase this. Should Warrior have interpreted Brett's title win as, we're about to fire you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, hmm, okay. I don't, I personally don't interpret it as a get the fuck out. Okay. I, or say that we're about to fight. I interpret this as this was a necessity. Okay. They yeah. what Warrior would, as per the lawsuit he ends up doing, have discussions with Vince in late October about, and, and this is another quote from the lawsuit, his desire to pursue commercial activity in which the promoter is not otherwise engaged. Anytime you hear stuff like this, it's like the kiss of death for somebody working with Vince, isn't it? Yeah. 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 These yeah. things include... Hey, opening... Al, what about me? Where's my cut, Al? <laughs> yeah, yeah. These ventures include opening a gym, making a workout video, releasing a poster. You know, he claims that he gets verbal agreement to use the name Ultimate Warrior on these projects, but Vince then doesn't you know, submit it in writing, which sounds familiar. Um, I'm sure this endeared him to Vince even more. But yeah, I, I think that when the when Brett gets the belt and not Warrior, I think that he's... I mean, I, I, I do wonder how thin the ice is that he's on at this point. One thing that I was trying to find during all of this, and I'm sure this was something from Meltzer, but I couldn't find it anywhere, is that the original October 10th discussion we talked about was... Warrior kind of tipping him off that, you know, uh-oh, the guy's been busted. And that the final straw was that he actually left some of his growth hormone with his name on it in a hotel room. <laughs> I'm certain that came from Meltzer. Okay. But I couldn't find it anywhere. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hold that up as what happened. But yeah. you know, <laughs> that, that's that, not that, that's not my human growth growth hormone. Excuse me, it says Jay Helwig on it. <laughs> Yeah, who else's name is Warrior Warrior? So yeah, I guess well, that came later. But yeah, no. So, but that's it. I, I I see it more as because again, look at the time frame of this. From the tenth when he gets this news to the twelfth, this is a panic reaction. Even though he knows he wants to get the belt off Flair, the decision to to, to do it there and then is like a panic because yes. Flair, Flair Flair needs the time off. You can't do it with Warrior when he's told you this, mm-hmm. and it's like so, so. Who's left? You either, you either literally have. Savage, who you've decided it's not going to work. So of these options, you're left with like Tito, Brett, and DiBiase <laughs> out of those those options. So and DiBiase makes no sense. So you can't. DiBiase makes no sense at all. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, what would Warrior's trajectory have been had he not left? Uh, there were rumors that he would be working with nails, which sounds absolutely atrocious. Uh, that there are people who have long speculated that the warrior was going to turn heel at some point. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I think everything, as we'll discuss, everything is so up in the air during this two-month period that I could see anything being possible because there is panic fire going on all over the place from all different angles. And I can't, I mean, I can't see the warrior character working as a heel, really, because in the WF, heels feed the baby faces, and that's, you know... I don't really see how Warrior works that way. He would, I, I think at best he would have just ended up as the number two guy behind Brett. And Brett has said in the past that he was told he was going to work with the Warrior at the Rumble before they fired him. But I kind of also think to myself, I'll bet Warrior would have just fucked off before he did that. Like, before he jumped. And Warrior, yeah. Warrior is on the Royal Rumble 1993 poster, the original one. Mm. Just to show like kind of, you know, so so maybe he was... Uh, factored in. I would have to get a copy of that. Was was Brett and Razor like at the top of that and Warrior was just down below? Oh my goodness gracious me. Yeah, but bottom line is uh, he's gone and 
Um, <laughs> so was Davy Boy Smith. So bringing it back to on screen, Liam, with Warrior figure into the main event for survivors, as Dave always liked to say. <laughs> and Davy, remember, he's the IC champ. Action needed to be taken by the promotion with Davy. It was pretty straightforward. The IC title. We talked about this last time. It seemed destined for Shawn Michaels anyways. He, Shawn was going to get it earlier if SummerSlam wasn't in Wembley. So they do a switch on Saturday night's main event. Shawn Michaels beats Davey Boy Smith on that show, and Davey Boy Smith is gone. Yeah, and even in the lead-up to this, Davey Boy does, like, nothing of consequence, it feels he, like. Ever, ever since he wins the belt, he comes out and does a staggeringly poor promo on the podium with Gene. <laughs> Is it with Gene? I believe it's with Gene. And he just talks about how, you know, he's going to take on all comers. And it's just so plain and boring. And he just plays music and just get him out of there. <laughs> he beats the repo man. Yeah, like, the right same. Before. Yeah, right before they did. They act like it's the same day. So, Bulldog, just for, just for the timing of this, because I think this is actually quite important. Bulldog, after the satellites made event taping, he again continues to work for the company for a couple of weeks. But by the time they air Satellite's main event, Bulldog is fired. So the TV thing is the last thing you see of, of, of Davy Boy. He's done. That's it. The belt's on Sean. Bulldog hit the bricks. Yeah. And it, so humorous tale here. I'm sitting in the crowd at Survivor Series 92, okay? And I got my program <laughs> handy. And the British Bulldog was scheduled to wrestle the Mountie. It was going to be an Intercontinental title match originally. What a freaking shit Intercontinental title match that was, huh? <laughs> and... You know, it was weird. To, so the tag match that we'll get into happens in the middle. Brett and Sean comes on. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. But I'm like, hey, what happened to British Bulldog versus the Mountie? I actually said to my brother, is that going to be the last match? <laughs> oh, damn. Because they, they didn't pull it on. It was still in the program I bought at the show. But uh, it turns out, no, uh, both guys were gone. Because, yes, the Mountie is also gone. We should mention that right now while we're clipping people. Uh, certainly did not have the effect on the promotion. Ultimate Warrior David Boy Smith leaving did. But, uh, yeah, the, and, and, you know, like the other two, he'd be back. The Mountie would be back, uh, actually, in, in a much shorter period of time. But uh, just a note here. Bulldog HBK was not originally scheduled for Saturday Night's main events. So, I mean, it was not like they were going to do the title change um, at this point before, you know, Bulldog got popped and they needed to fire him. But it turns into a convenient replacement for a scheduled Ric Flair Big Boss Man match that was actually never announced on television. But all the newsletters reported Flair and Boss Man were going to wrestle on Saturday's main event, but that couldn't take place due to the Flair injury. Yeah. Yeah. It worked out. Yeah, it did. And do you think Brett, because he mentions Davey in that Survivor Series showdown interview with Finch, should he have beaten Davey on the way out the door? Any last thoughts on Davey? Yeah, it's a, it's a, I don't know why he does that, because he's gone at that point, right? If I'm not, Yeah, he is, he's gone. I'm almost yeah. certain Davey's gone by then. So why that, you know, because Vince asks him, would you like to wrestle him again? And he says yes, and it's like he's fired. <laughs> like, why would you even... So I don't know. That seems like a very Maybe it must thing have, to do. It must have been taped beforehand, and they just you would there think was so much. Go, there was so much going on. They forgot to edit that part out. Or uh, I, I wouldn't be know. surprised. Stranger things have certainly happened. In terms of any last thoughts on Davy, you know this. What we've what we've talked about really on part four is the peak of his career. Even though we go on to do you know a lot of a lot of big things, I suppose going forward, it never gets bigger than what we've seen here, and it's just amazing how again. Even though we're talking about Warrior, I mean, that's a, this is a big deal. Real, realistically, the Warrior is the biggest name, perhaps, that they have at the moment. Because even though Savage is a big name, you know, as we've talked about, he didn't draw well. Warrior seems like he should be the biggest name. So, in, in essence, 
the company's top babyface or second top babyface in terms of name value is gone. Not only that, but Europe, which has been carrying the WWF's house show business and helps immensely at SummerSlam for the live gate, Davey's gone. The guy's been built on Now, obviously, the WWF name over here meant a lot, and we didn't necessarily need Davey Boy for it to be a success over here. But considering that you had put all of that effort into Bulldog being the star of the promotion over here, and he's gone within like two months, that's staggering. Yeah, it, it and really again, is. And again, opens the door for WCW Worldwide's massive ratings to, you know, jump on jump on the on David Boy and Davies there. Yeah, they, WCW had a very successful tour over there in early nineteen eighty three. Although I think they, you know, kind of similar to what you're talking about with the brand name WWF being the big draw mm-hmm. over there with you guys. I, I think before they even announced David Boy Smith would be on that tour, or that Ric Flair. Oh, by the way, he's going back to WCW in a little bit soon. Before those names were even announced, I think they were doing monster business. Yeah. Uh, in terms of ticket sales in early 93 WCW, but that's a different story for a different day. Uh, I guess just one last chance for you to shit on Davey Boy Smith as a promo during this period, Liam, because you have killed him, I think, on every episode. <laughs> Well, I mean, to be honest, he, he doesn't really get another chance outside that podium one. Like I said, it's, 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 it is striking how little focus he gets coming off As, SummerSlam. Yeah, it really, maybe they kind of knew. I don't know. I, th- I think they knew. I, th- I think that Davey Boy, I mean, he, he, was, he served his purpose for what they needed at that point in time. But there was never any plans for Davey outside of having him as the guy for the UK, I think yeah. is, is pretty obvious to, to see. Yeah, so... Okay, let's go into our next pay-per-view now. Survivor Series, Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels, which was originally announced with neither as a title holder and clearly not designed as a feature attraction for the pay-per-view. It was not even featured on the poster for the show. It now becomes WWF Champion versus Intercontinental Champion, only the former on the line, and thrust into the main event position at Survivor Series. Or at least because... I'm going to mention, I remember being in the building, Liam, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, man, I was into this match. Because I I actually really loved Shawn Michaels during this period. And was, like, really fired up. He won the Intercontinental title. But I remember, when I think of this match, I remember sitting in that crowd. And the people around me were not really into it like they would be for like the classic hogan main events yeah they were sort of of just sitting on their hands being appreciative of what they were seeing i think i was like kind of like the most into it person in my section which is probably embarrassing in retrospect if someone had a camera (laughs) but yeah it it just we'll talk about whether it was actually the main event or not it really wasn't the main event it just Mm. went on last but yeah, live crowd didn't seem accepting of this match as a show closer. Yeah, I mean they're, they're in a very, very tough position. I mean, and, and, and again, it's a very good match, and it's, yes, it's, it's it and, and and following on from what we talked about at SummerSlam, where it's like it's interesting that at SummerSlam night two they go with a very different type of main event with Bretton Bulldog in terms of the way the match is worked, very different from what you would expect from Hogan, and they do it again here, and it's just I, I, and again, I under when you listen. When you're in that crowd, Kyle, and you're listening to the kind of the the reactions of the crowd not being what they were, yeah, it's just it's it's just I can't help but think, God, how things have changed since the Royal Rumble at the start of this year. Oh, oh I mean, there, there aren't many years in the history of this promotion 
that are so different from the start to the end. And we're going to hit on this that at the end of this podcast. Uh, something else we're going to hit on in a little bit was how sensational Sherry was not at ringside no. uh, for the Survivor Series main event. There was a Marty Jannetty angle. We'll talk about that later. I do like the idea with Brett and Sean. You know, we talk about Brett didn't get to beat Davey on the way out, but Brett beats the guy who just beat Bulldog. That's cool. The style of match, you hit on this just a moment ago, Liam. It's like with the Bulldog match at SummerSlam. It's something they're trying to introduce to the audience with Brett. You know, again, a different style of champion. He has longer matches, um, you know, for people who like that, for people who are into the work rate. You know, it, it's a good, it, it's a higher quality wrestling main event. Mm-hmm. But uh, both Dave and Wade, and I think we're going to agree with this, leading up to the show, called Brett and Sean a weak main event on paper or a weak WWF title match because both guys still have that tag wrestler mid-carter stigma. Yeah, and they're absolutely right. And it, it feels, it's it's harsh. To, it's, it's more pronounced with Sean than it is with Brett because, like you say, Brett, Brett's been in this, position for a while people have been falling in and this is something that maybe we should touch on a little bit earlier on but this is a good time to say it fans had been very clearly falling in love with brett for a good couple for a good couple of years far and above his station you know you can you can tell i think you can tell as early as 1990 that if you brett was a singles guy there is there is something there I, i remember in the survivor series match in 89 with him and yeah, when him and Savage are hooking it up, especially him, him and Savage have that face off, and Brett's not really doing anything of substance on television. This is one of those periods where like him and Jim Neidhart are doing singles shit on television. Mm. They're towing the water, and Brett steps in uh, with Savage, and the crowd gets super into it. Yeah, I, I always remember that as a sign that yeah, people were ready for a Bret Hart singles push before it happened. Yeah, and, and I feel like you know these these. These matches aren't, you know, these big matches that Brett would have on pay-per-view where, like, you look at, like, a lot of these shows and it's, like, a lot of the more standout performances are Brett. You know, Brett, SummerSlam 19, the two out of three falls match, the Survivor Series with DiBiase that year. Um, you know, WrestleMania 7, obviously, him in, in the Nasties is not the standout performance on that show, but <laughs> SummerSlam, SummerSlam with Perfect certainly is. Yes. And, and, and you, it's, like, over this period of time, you know, you can see why they went with Brett and, and thought Brett was viable for this role. Reason I'm bringing this up now is because Sean had not had nearly the built-up no. see as a heel um, that Brett had as a babyface. So, and again, it's an extension of what we talked about earlier on with that berserker, Virgil, Mountie, Martell crew of guys Brett's working with. This was a pro- this was a program that had been talked about since right after WrestleMania eight as an intercontinental title feud. Yeah, and they really... You and know, they never actually got to it, and now they're getting to it for the world title. And it's just like, yeah, you actually positioned this in the middle, and then when you, by the time you deliver it, it has to be at the top. And that's kind of, again, a bit of a, a tough thing to swallow. Yeah, I mentioned both Dave and Wade saying that this was going to be a, a, a WF title match, that it would be a tough draw with it on top. Mm. To be fair, both had high expectations for it in the ring. Meltzer goes four and a half on the match. Wade yeah. at three and three quarters. <laughs> uh, I'm at four. I, yeah, I, I was going to say, I'm closer to Wade than Dave on this. Yeah, a four and a half. I, I didn't think it was a match of the year candidate. I didn't think it was as good as the Bulldog match. It just didn't, it just doesn't have the cachet. I think, again, I think it's important, much like the Bulldog match started, of this is what a Bret Hart 
WWF title match is going to be like much different than Hulk Hogan. And let's not sugarcoat it one iota. There's some obvious benefits to this kind of, I mean, these, we, we didn't, you're growing up, at least for me, you didn't get WWF title matches like this. It was kind of like the old style NWA title match. Now all of a sudden coming to Titan sports. And that was, Hey, it might not have drawn, but at least it was different. It's different. And this is the thing. And again, sorry to throw this at you out of nowhere, Kyle, but this is something that's been on my mind as we were approaching this show. How did you feel about that at the time? Like, oh, was, do, do you remember feeling like this is what I want to see more of rather than the, the stuff that you've been seeing in the years past? I don't remember like having like this smarky come to <laughs> Jesus moment where I'm like, yeah, Hulk Hogan, he couldn't work. Like, I don't remember like <laughs> talking like that. As well. But I remember, like I said, I was like super into the match. Yeah. In the building. It just was like, I. You know, I mean, I, I had watched like WCW. It's not like I, you know, I'd watched other promotions by that time. I, I just, I don't know. I, I guess I just naturally liked it. Uh, mm. I don't know, and maybe some other people didn't. But you know, it was again, it was different. I'm always somebody who like I get kind of sick of things and like, yeah. like different <laughs> things. And, and like I think just seeing long matches in the WWF for the first time. You know, I'm not going to say that I was like great like watching WCW like every week or something during this period. Although I, you know, eh, by '92 I had watched a lot, and I remember. When I would watch Saturday night, especially you got a lot of this in 92. I remember liking the longer matches mm, and, okay. and, and thinking to myself, you don't see this in WWF very often. It was kind of interesting. Interesting. So, yeah, it was, you know, it, 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 again, it was just it was different for me. And I liked Shaw. I actually like Shawn Michaels more. Than I liked Bret Hart by the end of 1992. Uh, that was just me. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, uh, it was. It was uh, certainly a different kind of closer for the pay-per-view uh, than we were accustomed to for the uh, you know late 80s and early 90s with Hogan on top. Now, let's go to the Warrior, okay? Yes. Back and, to Jim. Back, back to Jim Helwig, okay? So the real main event for this show was going to be a tag match. It was Warrior paired with Randy Savage as the ultimate maniacs, which was just a poor man's version of the Mega Powers. Yeah, yeah, complete with the yellow and red color scheme, which is far too on the nose for me. I, I didn't like it. It's like, come on, don't tell me that Vince didn't think of that. You know, as, as micromanaging as he is. Also, claims to be best friends. The best, the, not just best friends, the best friends either of them will ever have an unbreakable bond Again, based solely, I guess, on the fact that Warrior carried Savage out of the ring <laughs> after he dropped the belts. Which it's just like, why are we pretending like all of a sudden these this is like this this really did feel like a poor man's version of the Mega Powers. Yeah, the Ultimate Maniacs stink, and they were scheduled, of course, to wrestle Ric Flair and Razor Ramon mm-hmm. at Survivor Series. But with Warrior gone, a new partner was now needed for Savage. And this leads to one of the great eleventh hour angles in company history, Liam, where Savage picks who? Mr. Perfect to be his replacement partner. Let's break this angle down. This this is seriously superb. Like yeah. a tremendous show long story on prime time where Savage makes his announcement as someone you know, this is a bit off the piece. You know, this is this is this is kind of a, a out-the-box suggestion, but I'm gonna pick Mr. Perfect. And everybody laughs and scoffs, and Perfect himself is like, well, why in the world would I do this? And Savage at first is just kind of hitting on the idea of, oh yeah, it's a, it's a huge payday. And you know them well. And, I love know, I guess, that. I love that so much. Yeah. The, the payday issue, yeah. You can make a lot of money in one night. And then, of course, they get so, you know, they, they, you know Bobby's no, everyone's no. Perfect doesn't, you can tell that Perfect's kind of like, his natural inclination is, I'm not, I'm, obviously I'm not going to do this. But as soon as Savage starts making some points and the reactions of Heen and Flair and Ramon, 
at first just being like, why would he do this when, when it gets answered? And, and of course, you've always got the worthwhile Jim Duggan and Hillbilly Jim there to, to, to break the logic down about why this should happen. But Vince is really good in this too, in fairness to him. But this really is Bobby well, Heenan's finest hour. <laughs> uh, so I went to the uh, the PWO message board. I know that you, you, you frequented there before too. Mm-hmm. Somebody on that message board, when they were talking about this angle on primetime wrestling, said other than the 92 rumble it was heenan's fi- finest hour yeah um, not just in 92 but maybe in the pro- his whole run in the promotion he, he was incredible just they talk about him going through like what is it the five stages of denial yeah, yeah. we're like you know you laugh it off and then he gets kind of like pissed off about it and then he starts getting worried and then like he gets real mad at perfect and then that leads to you it's know breaking down into tears at the end it's phenomenal. yes so, yeah, you mentioned – I thought Vince McMahon was tremendous in this. I, you, look, say what you will about Vince, and Lord knows we've said a lot. Like, him needling Perfect the whole time. So, Perfect is totally quiet the whole show. Yeah, after which I love. Finished, I love that. Which is sort of, and, and Vince is so good. It's like, well, you know, I know you're not going to do this, but let's just bring up these ideas that Randy Savage threw out there. It's a great painting. And then the, the whole crux of this and what starts turning it is the idea that perfect has been in rick flair's shadow and they're trying to keep him in the periphery while rick flair gets all the credit and razor ramon was tremendous in this segment i thought as well because he was the guy who didn't really have the relationship with perfect like Mm -hmm. a personal relationship and so he's like oh yeah i heard you used to be somebody but now you walk behind us and you're the manager yeah, I mean, and, like, and he's putting his foot in his, he's putting his foot in his mouth. He doesn't really give a fuck that he's doing it, but <laughs> it's 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 huge in in terms of like turning Perfect's mindset. And then Flair is you know being very arrogant the whole time, saying, "Well, I'll leave. even if you are in my shadow, what a great place to be—the shadow of Ric Flair." And yeah. he's putting his foot in his mouth, maybe less intentionally. Yeah, yeah, he's it's, it's as, as it starts, and again because. And they, I mean, they they'd done a tease for this before. We talked about you know the trouble in the Heenan Camp video on YouTube prior to the Royal Rumble '92. If you've seen that, this is similar in the sense of Heenan being great, stuttering and stammering at certain points, trying to collect himself, trying to control the room as everyone's getting out of control, feeding perfect ideas that like this actually might be something that could happen. And yeah, that that the the big turn of this is like you say, Flair. When Flair starts putting the boot in. You can just it's like perfect's getting like less and less reasons not to do this because of everybody's just absolute arrogance yeah. to, and, to, to how this is going to go. And like they keep saying, Oh, well, do you think you're better than Ric Flair? And perfect's like, yeah. Of course I do. And like, and that's like, of course, that pisses, yeah, and that pisses Flair off. But yeah, Heenan's good. It's great. Um, you can find this if you again, if you're listening to a three hour podcast about the, the 1992 WF, <laughs> we're assuming you've seen this angle before. But if you haven't or want to revisit it, somebody has it clipped up like uninterrupted on you. You can like just watch this angle. It is legitimately what it, like considering that they fired Warrior and they need a replacement like at the Fast. 11th hour. Yeah, this this is just one of the great angles considering the situation they're in. We do know that um, there was always a plan, it seemed, to turn perfect babyface, right? We, we, the newsletters have been talked about. I feel we've said that. Like, you, you mentioned trouble in the Heenan camp going to the Royal Rumble. They were teasing this for a while, it seemed. So was Mr. Perfect the right call to be Savage's 
partner, Liam, all things considered. I, you know, I, th there were some in the newsletters making the case for Hogan. My response to that was way too short of notice. Yeah, I don't like that. I don't like that. Like, if Hogan's been gone for that length of time, you that's something you've got to hype to death. You can't just be like, oh, Hogan's returning in six days out of nowhere. I, I don't think that works. Should it doesn't Savage, work. Should Savage have picked Brett, maybe, for the reasons we outlined earlier, where Brett sort of needed to be minted into the main event situation, um, like, clearly for the audience? Yes, absolutely. Brett is my pick for this. If, if, if I'm in their shoes, I probably would pick Brett. Hogan... One of the big things with this, really, is that they had spent the entire... That Satellite's main event, which they aired after they'd already gotten rid of the Warrior, which we'll talk about. But mm -hmm. they spent that entire show talking about Warrior as the partner for Savage. That, that was just the match that was going to happen. The primetime episode, I think, did like one quarter of the rating. So the idea that you would spend the opportunity on Satellite's main event to talk about the Warrior, and then primetime would be where you would mention Hogan. Granted, it's... You know, it's, it's, it's by you know, cause of what you have to do. But at the same time, it just feels like that's not the time to do it with Hogan. Not to go too far off the beaten path. It, like I say, it's when they get Survivor Series out of the way, which in a way kind of feels like how the whole show feels by the end of it. Like we yeah. need to get Survivor Series out the way and recalibrate and build around Brett. And it's when they do build around Brett with Flair and, and Ramon chasing him, announcing that Ramon's challenging at the Rumble, but Flair's on his, on his trail with the idea, as they say in the promos, if the right one doesn't get you, the left one will. That's when Brett really feels like he's a top star in, in, at the level of these guys, let alone being the top star that everybody needs to revolve around. Now, granted, it was so late in the game, again, we talk about Saturnite's main events, they'd already done the Brett and Sean angle at Saturnite's main event to build that match up as well. Mm -hmm. So, while well, adding Brett to the match, the tag match, is best for Brett. To, to help, again, immediately get him in the sphere of the main event level guys. It's best for the belt. It's best for his story. The most intriguing hot shot, if you have to do a hot shot, is perfect. Yeah. And since they just done the bad bar eight at SummerSlam, I can see why they did this. Um, because, again, it's like, okay, what's the best thing we can do on short notice? Is it to put Brett in that position? Well, that'd be best for Brett, but is that going to pop a buy rate anymore? Maybe not. Set your perfect that the idea of oh my god, this enthusiasm, we've got to see this show perfect back against Flair. I can see why they went there. It's also very clear, very quickly. And I want mm. you alluded to it, and I want to point out too Razor is an absolute winner of a new character. The interactions with Savage prior to this, after you know, post that post the title change to Flair are great, and the stuff with uh, you know, Perfecto, as Razor says, post SummerSlam, also on prime, post the Survivor Series, also on prime time. Also excellent stuff. So Razor fits in immediately here. Um, and again, it's like a fun, interesting note. It's around the time when Brett wins the belt. And like we mentioned before, there's those rumblings that there's some kind of problem with the Warrior. The first thing that anybody says is Brett is probably going to be a substitution for the Warrior at the pay-per-view. That's in the newsletters. That's in the yeah. newsletters. Yeah, the newsletters are reporting that Brett is probably going to fill Warrior's shoes at the pay-per-view. And of course, Warrior actually sticks with the promotion for you know, a few more weeks before he gets turfed out. Yeah, and you know, I don't know why I have this note here, because it would have fit much better with the earlier conversation, but just in, in terms of what they were going to do with the Warrior, potentially, th there were rumors that Vince wanted to turn Warrior heel for Hogan at WrestleMania 9. Hmm. But for, okay. what it's for what it's worth, Bruce Pritchard, again, for what it's worth, it's Bruce, um, 
has said there was never, and I think we brought brought this up in the past, said there was never any consideration by Vince McMahon to turn the Warrior, though Bruce was gone in the summer of 92. Yeah, there's there's a lot of conversations he wasn't privy to during that period of time. Although, again, to be fair, I can't imagine at that period of time, ah, you know what, though? We did talk about how there was was always rumors about it heading to SummerSlam. Yeah, so, all right, anyway, let's get back uh, to this tag match situation. It should be noted, okay, prior to the switch to Mr. Perfect, okay, and I agree with you in terms of trying, because this pay-per-view really, like... I'm going to mention this. Let me mention this now. Okay. Before they switched to Mr. Perfect, the tag match, which is now absent to world champion, Brett's the world champion. So it's just Flair and Ramon versus Savage and, and Warrior. Savage has lost the title. Flair's lost the title. That was dying on the vine. <laughs> like dying on the vine. So that, so what I wanted to say is back to your earlier point that the hot shot to Perfect is the move. They, if they had done Savage and Brett... I do think, like, with it's got like for the big picture and what yeah. that would do yes. for Brett. Yes. You're right; it's the right move. But in terms of a pay-per-view that doesn't have a lot of interest already, they're worried about the buy rate. I see absolutely yeah. why you would do the perfect turn. You had wanted to turn perfect babyface. It was a great fucking angle, as we talked about. Um, so I see why they did the switch to perfect. But Liam. This, these old, before he gets fired, these ultimate warrior promos alongside Savage while this tight, this tag match is just dying on the vine. Oh my Lord. Idiots. Idiots promos. The fucking warrior at this point. I, again, maybe due to the fact that it was, he was no longer getting the belt, but he is just, he's just absolutely shambolic. Leading up to this, after Brett gets the belt, I don't know if he just didn't give a fuck or if he thought that because I honestly feel like he's doing some kind of Randy Savage impression as the ultimate warrior. Yes, but and it's horrible. It's dreadful. And he's just, he's like stumbling. He's just, he's just acting like a fucking bell end in the middle of these promos that are like, even Savage is there. Like, Jesus Christ, tone it down, man. Like, let's yeah. just, let's fucking get on track here. When Flair loses the belt, it strips away like a major element to this entire story with a tag match with Warrior and Savage. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Savage is the one that's been screwed. Warrior is the one chasing for the belt. Well, now you've got like Savage and Warrior just basically saying, ha you've lost the belt. And, and like, you know, and like Flair is just like pissed off because he's lost the belt to Brett. Razor's just, you know, it's, just, it's, it's lost. It's lost the reason the match was happening. Like it's, you know, these are the top guys. There's been a big controversial situation around the belt that's ongoing and this big mega tag match is happening as a grudge. Well, now the, the core reason for the grudge is gone. And and then you just got Warrior doing his Randy Savage impression. Which was so bad. So, like I said earlier, it was pretty clear that the plan was always to turn perfect. Mm. But if you look back, think back to part four, did the SummerSlam angle where, you know, who's who sold out to perfect, Savage or War? Well, actually, nobody. Does that kind of make things... a even a little more does it make things illogical savage picking perfect after he had just turned down his services or do you think savage because you alluded to this did, did he explain that away enough by saying yeah i know this is an out this is a completely outside the box idea but i'm going to pick mr perfect anyway yeah like, to be to be fair to them i actually do think they did a good enough job because it wasn't like i, I think it would have been this would have been job and this is what probably why i like this angle so much this feels 
not like your typical WWF ram it down your throat one note joke heel turn or, or babyface turn for that matter. This is like because it plays out over the course of the entire primetime show, you get a chance for these ideas and these reasons to percolate. At first, he just kind of you know Savage just says like yeah this is this is this makes no sense this is this is a you know a, a crazy idea, but this is why I want to do it and because everybody else's reactions plays off the fact that well this is as vince says this will never happen but let's just entertain the idea for a second and and it it plays out that way i think that it actually kind of gets around that pretty well yeah i agree uh liam i think they did handle things all um told very well given given it and the execution of the angle even if the angle didn't really draw and was not seen by a very large audience you mentioned the ratings golf between prime time and Saturday's main event, neither rating was good, but the primetime rating was like really bad. Meltzer made note of it. Mm, uh, yeah. they, they, they replayed it on all the weekend shows, which was good. I wasn't a primetime watcher at the time. That's how I saw it was on the weekend shows, the recap. But uh, you mentioned this a few minutes ago, and I think we need to just double down on it real quick. Just to show how last second everything was. Mr. Perfect was part of a heel beatdown of Warrior and Savage on Saturday Night's Main Event. Warrior and Savage wrestled Money, Inc. Guess what Money, Inc. did, everybody? They (laughs) walked out on the match. Um, And at the end of this show, Saturday Night's Main Event, they had Bobby Heenan, like, on a phone announcing there was a shakeup on the babyface team. So this is how they they decided to handle the switch. They're like, yeah, Savage and Warrior are not going to be teaming up. One of them is out. I don't know who. And that's how yeah. the show it's been event ends. Yeah, and that's kind of lost the history because I I did not realize just how last minute it was in that sense of, of just cramming that on there at the end. Um, and again, due to that kind of off- uh, you know, aforementioned timing, they aired the show knowing they wouldn't be doing the match they spent the whole show plugging. And the angle you know, where they end up is like, again, it's perfect, just beating the shit out of Randy Savage, and then all of a sudden he's going to be his partner. But that's, you know, that's, again, nature of the beast. Sometimes you have to make sense out of something. Yeah, and obviously commentary is done post-production for those things. So yeah. they had taped yeah. the show, but the, the, the Vince and Heenan announcing, that, that allowed them to do that part at the end. But yeah, it's really odd that they they would they, they would air, you know, I don't know, can you do the angle, on the perfect angle? I mean, I don't know, because primetime did seem like the perfect format to do it, even if it's the yeah, last watch to, show. I mean, you, you had to, you, I think considering where you were going from to where you were getting to, I think it, it needed the time. I don't think the angle works nearly as well if it's just some kind of like accidental shot and perfect all of a sudden fires up and starts. But again, like I say, they'd already taped it all. <laughs> they yeah. taped it all. All right, let's talk about this tag match, shall we? Savage yes. and Mr. Perfect, the perfect team against Ric Flair and Razor One. I was very much excited for this. So, mm. you know, while uh, it, it got me, I, I remember being way more fired up for this card when Mr. Perfect had turned babyface than I was prior. Um, it, it's very much presented as the main event in the build. Yep. Yeah. And even before Warrior's gone, they're out like calling the tag match the main event on television anyway. Yeah. So, given all the moving parts, um, that are in play here. I'm okay with this tag match being a DQ. So basically, um, you know, perfect and flair have some fun interactions throughout it. As you would imagine they do perfect and savage have some miscommunication or something mm-hmm. or, or like our savage. Can't perfect. Make the tag. Yeah. And, and perfect frustration with that leads to him kind of taking a bit of a, a walk up the aisle and people are like, Whoa, no. Yeah. And then like he, he comes back and everything, everything yeah. is fine. But there's a, you know, they beat up Savage on the outside. 
it just turns into a big schmoz. Um, what do you think about them doing a DQ in the match? I, th- I think it's, it's, it's kind of a situation you have to do. With the, with the belt out of the picture of this match, there's no sense beating Razor because you've just brought him in and he's getting over. So you got to let him linger. Um, Flair, if, I, you know, I wouldn't beat Flair either because you want to go with Flair and Perfect and Flair and Brett. You know, again, mm-hmm. they, yes. they, they, the point is they need Flair and Razor strong for Brett. And that's ultimately where this goes. And the baby faces can't lose either because you just turned perfect. So you have to do something like this. How, how would it be booked if Warrior was in there? Any differently? Or are they going to do a shot? I think the faces would have gone over. And I think that if Warrior... Well, you know, it probably would have been something similar. Because I, I think originally... You could have had Warrior pin Flair because he's on he's, he's chasing him for the belt anyway. So I think that in theory, had Brett not won the belt, Warrior could have pinned Flair here to, to set up the the, the, the Do you think Warrior would have already been the world champion? If like if, if he doesn't get fired? That that's kind of the interesting thing. Yeah. I don't know about that. I wonder if they I wonder when they were planning on doing it. Because again, they had that list on September twenty first. So it wasn't like I don't believe that they were gonna wait that long. Um but they weren't going to do it at Survivor Series either. So, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's a tough one. I don't know about that. Hmm. So, all right. So that, that is kind of what they do at Survivor Series. So Bret Hart is the world champion, obviously coming out of Survivor Series. You have turned Mr. Perfect on mm-hmm. the babyface side. And they do Bret and Flair at the houses, including yes. a scheduled marathon match for Boston in January. <laughs> that is, of course, what we now know as the Iron Man match. Yeah. Uh, I know you wanted to speak on the quality of Ric Flair's work. Yes. Um, sort of post Mr. Perfect turn. Yeah, I honestly think, and even before that, I think to be fair, Ric Flair, after he loses the title, does what I think, and I would argue is as good as anything he did during this whole run in the WWF. It's the, it, and I say that maybe because he feels the most Ric Flair he ever does in the WWF, in the sense that after Brett wins, Flair is just indignant and he's just furious about losing the title to, to Brett and his promos where it's him and Razor and he's ranting and raving about Brett Hart and wants to get his belt back. A great post-Survivor series after the perfect turn. Flair is excellent. Again, just you know, whether he's on prime time or whether he's doing the, the bit with Gene, there's like an interview with Gene in the restaurant with Flair just sipping on champagne, just yes. talking about, again, and it's building up the house shows. It's talking about how, you know, Brett Hart, you know, he's a flash in the pan. And, you know, yeah, he beat me, but I'm a dynasty and I'm going to become the three-time WWF champion. And it's like, very matter of fact, not like, you know, he had his moment of, of losing his composure in the immediate aftermath. Now it's kind of that vibe of like, I'm going to be the champion again. It's a matter of time. And it was, the reason I loved it is because it's like, this Ric Flair feels like a top guy that Brett can work with. Like, like this actually, like, this, this, this showing Flair in this light where I feel he's best is exactly what a guy like Brett needed. Yeah, I assume you've seen the Iron Man match from Boston yeah. in January before. It, yeah. It's a very good match. It's very yeah, good. it is. It is good. Um, it should be noted, not the first marathon slash Iron match in WWF history. The no. Rockers and Rougeaus did some in 89. Yeah, yeah. A bit of a bit of trivia there. So it's Brett and Flair at the houses. Brett and Flair are having a, a feud on screen as well. But it's Bret Hart versus Razor Ramon at the is the WWF title match for the Royal Rumble in January. 
Should they have done Brett versus Flair instead at that pay-per-view? Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I, I, it feels to me when I watch the TV that Brett and Flair is the way to go. Now, Brett Ramon at the Rumble, actually, just to kind of bring this back, actually, we're talking about the Rumble here. Warrior was, in fact, on the poster for the 93 Rumble, and so oh. was Bulldog. Wow. Okay, Bulldog so was actually- also. You found it there? Well, okay. Yeah, okay. we got it. Oh. We got it. They're, they're at the front in black and white. And of course, Brett and Razor get the big heads at the background. But yeah, so it feels like. Oh, so so hold on there. Hold on. Let's not bury the lead. So Brett and Razor are at the top as the WF title match, but Warrior and Bulldog are also. They're also on the post- in front amongst like a mass of other people, like they're in the Rumble match. Okay, because that's interesting. So that tells you that basically Brett and Ramon was always kind of the plan then, I guess. Mm-hmm. If, that's, how, okay. that's how I interpret it. Okay, okay. Which also leads me to believe that the that the telling Brett he's going to beat the Warrior with some Vince bullshit, basically just kind of <laughs> yeah, telling him what he wants to hear, thinking there's probably a good chance Warrior's not going to make it that long. Um, but yeah, I I think that it's a it's an interesting choice, and again, it's kind of one of those where because Flair's the guy who's been beaten, I can see them thinking, well, Flair on the house shows because Razor that yeah, who knows? But Ramon did feel fresh, and Ramon does feel Ramon comes off better than I thought he would. Honestly, like yeah. I, I remember like early 93 and I just felt like Razor felt kind of green still and like he was kind of finding himself and getting over still. He comes off pretty damn good. Yeah, they didn't like to do um, on pay-per-view matches that everyone had seen yeah, at the houses. Exactly. So I guess why uh, Mr. Perfect is very firmly the number two baby face during this time period. He even comes to Brett's aid in an angle. This is, you mentioned it, where uh, Flair and Razor are talking, you know, about being the, if the left one doesn't get you, the right one will. Bobby Heenan mm-hmm. is even uh, involved verbally in I like that, that angle. Yes, so do I. Uh, Randy Savage is really persona non grata, though, after Survivor Series. I mean, it's like he just disappears off the face of the earth. He's nowhere to be seen. And again, it's another reason why I don't buy that Savage is ever content to get the belt back, because... Once this is finished, it's like, yeah, he's just like, he's calling him a third wheel seems generous. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, it's very much Brett and Perfect as the top two baby faces, Flair and Ramon as the top two heels. It's kind of interchangeable. We mentioned, should it have been Brett and Flair at the Rumble? It seems like it's very much Mr. Perfect feuding with Razor Ramon on yeah, television as well. Weird. I'm guessing because they, I, I don't know because I haven't looked, but I'm guessing that was the house show program. Yes. So, okay. Once we get to January, January 1st, Auburn Hills, Michigan, Mr. Perfect defeated Razor Ramon via DQ when Ric Flair interfered. January 2nd, Mr. Perfect mm-hmm. and Razor. So, okay. So once we start with 93, uh, it's absolutely Mr. Perfect and Razor yeah. Ramon at the houses. Um, Razor fucks up his knee too, uh, by the way, in the build uh, to that uh, match. That's... Just an aside. The Ultimate Warrior, who isn't allowed to use the gimmick or name anymore, did a run-in on an indie show for a promoter dumb enough to pay him. Uh, His $4,000 asking price, says (laughs) Meltzer. Warrior wasn't named and wore a trench coat and no makeup. (laughs) Wow, what a a, a deal that guy got for four grand. Yeah, uh, well, what a deal. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say... Having to be formally known as the ultimate warrior and, and not even being able to, again, and this is really, let's be honest, the reason why this is especially worth bringing up, this is the real reason for the lawsuits, because he wants to be the warrior. And this this ends up being a years-long thing, as people know, changes his real name to warrior so that he can be warrior, and, and it has to do, make the big argument in court about the makeup and uh, and, and all of that, so this is, a, this is an ongoing thing for warrior for a while. Yeah, and uh, you talk about what a hell of a deal for that promoter. Well, what a hell of a deal for Fox. 
uh, the second of the two Saturday Night's Main Event episodes. Of course, the first one aired in February before Mania, this one before Survivor Series. Well, bad number here for the November one. Mm -hmm. It does about two-thirds of the viewership of the February show. And Saturday Night's Main Event is no more, Liam. My Um, God. They lost lost NBC in April April of 91. We talked about that back in the 91 series. But Fox picks them up. They give them two specials for 92. Bad ratings, you know, coming like right at the end of all the network rate. I know that there was an Al Bundy, uh, you know, Al Bundy from uh, Married, <laughs> Married Children. Children. Yes, uh, there was a uh, he did the opening for that Saturday Night's Main Event, but that didn't help the ratings and all the TV ratings for WWF in this period are really in the shitter. Uh, <laughs> The Survivor Series does a bad buy rate, which you cannot blame on elimination matches anymore. Remember, they, um, <laughs> yeah, they, uh, like that was a big thing where Meltzer was like, "Oh, you know, I'll get to what Meltzer said about elimination matches in a minute." But you know, it's funny that they're they they put a WWF title match on the Survivor Series the year before '91, Hogan and Undertaker. Mm-hmm. Here, they completely eschew the format, and the the buy rates are lower, and the to- you know the total number of buys are lower. It's not just the buy rate. So, uh, 1990 Survivor Series did 400,000, uh, 91 did 300,000, 92 did 250,000. That 250,000 is the lowest for any, uh, pay-per-view, uh, they've done ever. So, uh, a new, a new record holder. And that's something we're going to be talking about, obviously, uh, a lot as we move forward. Just, you know, that, that business is at a nadir and, uh, house shows. Not doing great either, Liam. Cancellations in Rochester, Binghamton, Nashville, Huntsville, Monroe, Louisiana, and Portland, Oregon. And that Portland, Ooh. Oregon one had a scheduled main event of Animal versus Razor Ramon. This is before. Oh. <laughs> this is before Animal quit citing his back injury. We talked about that in the last episode. But WWF actually got some hot water for this Portland cancellation since no notice was given, even on the TV two days earlier. And some fans apparently chartered a bus to go to this show. And when they got there, there was no Animal versus Razor Ramon, Liam. <laughs> Animal versus Razor? The Animal versus Razor Ramon is your main event. Yeah. That, oh. uh, as we say on Top Rope Nation, it's not fucking good. Not fucking good. <laughs> and they got those people chartering the bus got what they asked for. God, chartering a bus to go see Animal versus Razor Ramon? Oh, come on, people. God, they got they, they gotta have something else to do in Portland. I mean, Jesus. And like have brunch. I'll tell you what, I I've been to Portland once in my life. You will never see like it's just insane. Like brunch, like on a Wednesday at 11 a.m. It's like, do people work here in this city? It was literally, you couldn't get like a table at a restaurant at 11 a.m. on a Wednesday. It was unbelievable. But uh, I don't know, fucking Don Owens closing up shop now. They don't got shit to do except charter buses. Yeah, watch Animal versus Razor Ramon. Um, Dave Meltzer had something to do. He went to a WF house show in San Francisco around this time and said the crowds are getting pretty pathetic, even in former hotbeds. Uh, they loaded up the show, said Dave, and still only drew 3,000 to a market that pulled in 11,000 for Jake Roberts and The Undertaker last year. Dave says the audience is also increasingly becoming males, in st- hardcore males, instead of the kids that they usually draw. Mm. I guess males as in hardcore fans, not males that are into hardcore stuff. I don't, it, <laughs> whatever, let's not get too far off the beaten path. Yeah, this, you know, it's this, this... This collection of events that we spent a lot of time talking about with the Warrior and Perfect and Brett, this company, 
has become a shambles. It really has become a bit of a shambles here because you talk about the Byrit for Survivor series being the lowest and setting the record. And what's kind of notable about that is that no one's surprised. Really. No yeah. one should be surprised that that happened. Um, you ha- they had to expect it going in. And that's how bad things have gotten. That you know, these, this, this many cancellations of house shows, headlining with Animal, no less, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, the, 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 the bad markets in hot, the, the bad attendances in hotbeds. It's incredible when you look at the amount of stuff we've talked about since we started this series in 1990, the amount of outside heat this company has taken, the Persian Gulf War, Hogan lying on Arsenio, the sex scandals. Even with all of that stuff, the company, if you watch, is able to pretty much keep the ship steady and navigate for the most part, even if people leave or if plans have to change. The company still feels like it's on the course. It, even if it's not the course it necessarily wants to be, it's still on course. This is the most disorganized this company to me has ever felt under Vince up to this point. And it feels like it watching. Yes, there's just a lot of just moving parts and people leaving, and it's not even explained. Cancellations you know? and record bad business and mm-hmm. satellite's main event gone. Like yeah. the anchor, the anchor of like the yo, this this is the biggest audience you'll get to build to WrestleMania going forward, and it's gone. Yeah, it is. And um that's the main event scene, I guess, Liam. Uh it's yeah. a very different main event scene than what we started the year with, and uh, I look forward to uh, you know, kind of going back. Like I said, we're going to have some fantasy rebooking in part one of 1993 for the mm-hmm. top of the card. But before we do that, we got to hit lower on the card, don't yes. we? Because there's a lot going on, uh, you know, in the mid card to close out 1992. Uh, so we just brought up earlier the decision to eschew elimination matches <laughs> uh, allowed for a couple gimmick matches at the pay-per-view. The coffin match, not a casket match, the coffin match and mm. the nightstick match. What do you think about no elimination matches at Survivor Series? I know there was one, but essentially this is they junked the format that the the pay-per-view kind of became synonymous with here. Yeah, bad this is a bad decision in my mind. Again, I do understand why. It's inter- this is why I'm really interested by this period of time because you can see they're being very reactive to the point where I don't know if I was in the moment that I would actually do differently. I couldn't call it the wrong decision given the situation they're in. Obviously, business is not good in in the US at this point. There's so much in the promotion that's changing so fast. To me, this is actually kind of the perfect time to do these multi-man matches with a view of kind of, okay, let's get all this stuff that's going on over here. Let's get it all together so that we can come out of it with the stories we want going forward in flight. That feels to me like the thing to do. But again, prisoner of the moment, they want the big buy rate. They're thinking that they want this to do well, short term over long term. And one of the staples and one of the hallmarks of wrestling companies that are in a state of decline is to lean on gimmick matches. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's what they do here. It's nightstick match blow off, coffin match blow off. You know, again, choosing to do this instead of Survivor Series traditional matches it's it's a it's a noticeable shift in what they want the purpose of this pay-per-view to be and it doesn't fulfill the purpose dave says no elimination matches were a quote reaction to the idea that you can't just put whatever you want on pay-per-view and have it draw any longer yeah well they 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 put something that they really thought about and still didn't draw so yeah i was saying they didn't even get the big buy rate with changing up the format maybe there was a lack of depth that prevented from doing elimination matches 
Yeah, I can, I can see that being a problem, especially, I mean, because, you know, time-wise on a show like this, you do need, like, you know, four of them, really. Or like, yeah. three or four. At least, you know, three or four of them. To, like, with, like, a, with, you know, the, the big tag match and maybe the Brett match is, a, is something as well that you could do if you want to kind of shake it up. But, you know. Yeah, and on that note, I am going to have a mock all elimination Survivor Series 1992 card that I'm going to share later because this, I love that idea. Th- this intrigued me. The idea it's like, okay, well, what if they did do elimination matches? I have a mock card. You we'll do that later in the you program. Kyle Ross have decided to brave the task that they were too afraid to do in 1992. Yes. Um. Well, what they what they do here? Uh, the t- Undertaker, <laughs> Kamala, and Tatanka Rick Martel feuds come to their merciful ends. Uh. Undertaker building the casket. That's memorable. <laughs> uh, or pardon yeah. me, the coffin. He built the coffin. I would love, to, I've always said this, I would love to know why a, the coffin match became the casket match. That has to be some weird Vinceism. It is. It's a, it's a, it's, it definitely is a weird Vinceism. He, he must not like the word coffin. You know why? He doesn't <laughs> like coughing and sneezing. There you go. <laughs> coffin. No one's doing any coffin in this room. Um, not my god, that company, pal. Uh, yeah, uh, by the way, uh, the Tatanka Rick Martel feud, which continued to get multiple features in WF Magazine, uh, including one where they threw around Trail of Tears a little bit too loosely, <laughs> um, was and I'm not even going to dignify the one that said Rick Martel went to a library to uh look up history of the French and Indian War. Oh, come on, it's in there. Come on, man. Well, it's, that's 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 significantly more bill than I remember this actually getting on television because the extent of it that I could see is Rick Martel calling Tatanka Buffalo Breath on the <laughs> Survivor Series Showdown. <laughs> Buffalo Breath. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't even hit the great stuff about having reservations about the match until Survivor Series. Yeah, well, I forgot what paper. I for, I got. I talked about that with Frank on the torch. What pay per view <laughs> he did that? That was very. What are we doing here? Throwing around the trail, comparing this feud to the Trail of Tears. <laughs> but um, oh my god! Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so, yeah, obviously, uh, Tatanka beats Rick Martel. Still undefeated, Tatanka. Yeah. And and still, no one really cares. I don't think that much. I'm again looking back at this stuff. Tatanka really, this does not click for me at all as as being. And again, look, it's not like they're they're getting really exciting stuff going with Tatanka anyway. I mean, this Tatanka Martel feud, it's a mercy killing that this is fi- this is still been you know, again. We say it's still been going on. It really hasn't been going on. It's just like lingering. At one point, it like they were going to build like Tatanka and Mountie early on in this this period of time that we're talking about here and that goes nowhere that you know tv was we talked about before alluding to the fact that there's a lot of repetitious stuff on television the the tv that the build for tatanka and kamala after SummerSlam is very very and kamala taker yeah Yeah. sorry taker and kamala i was i was too busy confused about awesome tatanka kamala match that they had on television which was just heinous but it's the same thing Again, again, Kamala's doing a match. Paul, Bre- Paul Bearer brings down the coffin. Kamala <laughs> shits his loincloth and runs away through the crowd. And he, he can't stand the sight of the coffin. It's the same thing again and again and again. And you just want it to be over. Yeah, and there is a pinfall in the casket match. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, and they actually did say that on TV. Bill Nutt said you have to you have to pin them and put them in the coffin. Yeah, and so that was something that obviously once it became a a casket match was they didn't do that anymore. You just had to put the guy in the coffin. Um, so uh, look, yeah, the the, the Taker Kamala thing was very repetitive. After, obviously, the Undertaker wins. Uh, Post Survivor Series, they start foreshadowing a babyface turn for Kamala. The less yeah. said about this, the better. But Kamala's getting read the Riot Act by Kim Chi and Harvey Whippleman. <laughs> and eventually we know that his Mick Kamala, the guy who would get him to see the light turn, was the Reverend Slick. <laughs> and we start seeing on television these uh, vignettes or whatever where Slick, who really became a reverend yeah. during 1992, he was doing these sermons that yeah, were very, very bad. There was one I remember. There was a line about arthritis where he talked about a guy coming up to him asking if he could cure his arthritis and Slick's answer to this man was like, just be glad you have legs. <laughs> that's a good thing. Well, something that doesn't sound entertaining is apparently at the house shows, they were having Slick do sermons. And Meltzer said some people had called it the worst thing they'd ever seen <laughs> in a house show and think of the ground that covers. Yeah, I, I, I don't blame him. You know, even as even as like short TV vignettes where he's standing in at the at the at the pulpit, as it were, mm-hmm. with like the green screen stained glass windows in behind him. It doesn't it just doesn't look very good. And it's this this is not something that I'm gonna get behind as a baby face. Baby face slick. Yeah, the reverend. Uh, a weird angle took place at the Louisville tapings, Liam, where Howard Finkel did a stretcher job for Kamala after getting in his face. Finkel fell off the stretcher after agents loaded him on and then fell off again on the way back to the dressing room. <laughs> Dave suspects this is just for their own amusement, uh, the office's own amusement, as they traditionally shoot goofy stuff and air it at the Christmas party and not on TV. What a hoot that party sounds like. Yeah, well, actually, this ought up airing on USWA television. Uh <laughs> Part of an angle they were doing there, yes, we're going to be talking about the USWA here in a little bit uh, for reasons that I'm sure you all know why. But this was to they shot that, the stretcher deal, two weeks after Finkel in another untelevised segment, quote, stood up to Whippleman. And they have this face off where like Finkel tears his shirt off and Real American starts playing in the arena. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. Very interesting timing. There was around this time a meeting. It was again. It was as there were problems with the warrior. There was a meeting with Hogan. Yeah, and, and exactly. The torch said they were by playing real American. They may have been gauging what the audience reaction would be to Hogan yeah. if he were to come back. So yeah. uh, nothing like using the old think for for that. Uh, <laughs> Human guinea pig. Yeah, but God, the way they treated that man was foul. Uh, the Undertaker. You talk about foul. Uh, he was deal- he, we'll get to it in a second, but he was dealing with a shoulder injury around this time. Perhaps maybe that was a reason he wasn't on the list of five. But they also teased a feud on television before the blow-off with Kamala with Nails. Undertaker and Nails had a face-off, and honestly, it seemed hotter than Taker and Kamala. It seemed hotter than Taker and Kamala, and it seemed hotter than Nails and Boss Man. Yeah, and um, yeah, we'll get to Nails and Boss Man in a bit, but... Um, on the house show circuit, they had to rush Undertaker back from shoulder surgery with Warrior gone because mm. Warrior was working nails at the house shows before he gets fired or, or supposed to be. And then Undertaker's got this hurt shoulder. So what do they do? 30 second main events 
between the Undertaker and Nails, where Nails basically has to jump up and choke slam himself before getting pinned. Dave said they did this several times over the West Coast swing and nearly had a riot erupt on several shows <laughs> with the Warrior failing to show and that being the main event they delivered. Uh, it's pitiful stuff. And again, against the backdrop of everything else that we're talking about that's going wrong, you have to do these shows. Like, the people who are like... With, with all these absences and all these things changing, the people who are still willing to spend money on the product go, that's, that's what they what get. get. Yeah. Oh, well, my God. Well, it's better than getting Nails and Jim Duggan, which was also a, a going around <laughs> the house. And apparently those ma- – Dave was – he joked that it, this was good, that the matches never started because imagine how bad they would be. It was just basically Nails would just kick Jim Duggan's ass and, right. like, do an injury angle, and it was over. Uh, we'll get to Nails. Mm-hmm. I know Stewart's listening because uh, – this is uh, Nail's, I guess, most famous moment we're going to get to in a few moments. But uh, we do have to talk about tag team title change because Money, Inc., yuck. Uh, yeah. They get the belts back from the disasters. Yuck. This is another one. Yeah, this is another one kind of out of nowhere, Liam. It, at least it was on TV. Mm. Uh, and in the, what makes it odd is in the WWF magazine a few months earlier, the disasters had been portrayed as unbeatable. There was like the story, it's like, can anyone beat the natural disasters? And then it turns out, yes, Muddy Inc. can. They beat them right back. And then <laughs> this is kind of it for the natural disasters. Yeah, this this really, again, feels motivated by real events in some respect. I, I, I don't really feel that Money, Inc. needed this at all, or that this was something that Money, Inc. They, they should not have gone with this. Even though it does feel out of nowhere, you can see that there are embers of this being built up because they're doing this storyline with Jimmy Hart on TV where he's you know, the torn between two lovers. He's managing both the Nasties and Money, Inc., and you've got Vince and Perfect on commentary debating which of those two teams should be the number one contenders. Um, interestingly, Perfect the heel is kind of leaning towards the Nasty Boys, which is bizarre. But... Um, but yeah, so so the, you know, they end up with this whole thing of like Jimmy Hart eventually just saying, it's going to be Money, Inc. It's going to be Money, Inc. Um, which leads to the angle with the Nasty Boys coming out and turning babyface, which, you know, didn't really look like it worked that well, to be honest. No, and it's it's a repeat of what we just saw with the disasters. Yeah, it's exactly how Earlier in the year. It's the yeah. exact same thing they did earlier in the year where Jimmy Hart, you know, sold out a team for Money Inc., another one of his teams for Money Inc., and it was just, yeah, it was, I did, like, uh, later in that show, so the Nasty, so what happens is Money, it was going to be the Natural Disasters defending against the Nasty Boys, because remember, the Nasty Boys earned the number one contender spot by getting the, what was it, the DQ or countout win over the Ultimate Maniacs at the SummerSlam. Yeah, so they have the shot. But Jimmy Hart gives it to Money Inc. instead. The Nasties want to know what the hell's going on before the match because Money Inc. comes out for the, the the title match instead of the Nasty Boys. Nasty Boys want to know what's up. Money Inc. tries to pay them off. Nasty Boys, you know, look at the money, but then they, you know, throw it in the air and kick Money Inc.'s ass. It made the disasters look really bad that Money Inc. got their ass kicked and then still won the titles clean. Yeah, and, well, that, and that, that's to me, that's where it feels the out of nowhere aspect is really jarring. Quake just loses to the million dollar dream, and that's it. Now, there was a new team that got involved in that match. We'll talk about them in the coming and going uh, mm-hmm. segment as well. Because I guess that that's not the full story that, like, Muddy Inc. just made this Herculean comeback. We, we, we did have a new team get involved, but we always save uh, the newcomers for the coming and going segment. We're not quite there yet. Uh, there was an eight-man at Survivor Series. There was one elimination match. We said this. Uh, it was originally going to be the 
Natural Disasters and the Bushwhackers against Money Inc. There's and pals. Beverly Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. After what had happened the, <laughs> the previous year. But the Bushwhackers get replaced by the Nasty Boys. And there were rumors that Captain Lou was going to come out of retirement to manage the Nasties. Yeah. Thank God. Thank God that didn't happen. Meltzer alluded to, and we mentioned the Justice Department snooping around the WWF around this point, that maybe that had something to do with Captain Lou not wanting to come back. Ah, well, okay. Well, Captain Lou. <laughs> Smart man. Um, Pity City, now that the Nasty Boys are baby faces, the, uh, the old face to the armpit. Yeah, this is, so this, you know, we mentioned obviously the angle there where they turn babyface. As I mentioned, it doesn't really seem to work at all. Because if you're looking at the crowd during the Nasty's turn, it sounds like it's getting over, but it's blatantly, obviously, crowd sweeping because the fans are just sat down on their hands. No one's moving their <laughs> mouths or arms, but apparently the crowd's going wild for this. And it's just this, they don't care. They don't give a shit about the Nasty Boys fighting Money, Inc. It's really only when we get to the segment after the match where Jimmy Hart does, in fact, go to Pity yes, City. That, that's, that's what I was going to say. I like that segment, actually. I thought that, that, was... that works. That that's where That's where the turn takes place. Yes. So... Um, we should note that this title change, how it did air on first run television, they did this weird simulcast deal with Challenge and Superstars, where, <laughs> like, did, did you catch it where, like, the, the two announced teams were, like, talking about it? Gorilla and um, Bobby and then uh, Vincent Perfect. So, oh, it, yeah, it, 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 I don't think it was on our, um, our like, little clip. It was something else. It, it was just something that I, I caught in the notes. But, yeah, hmm. it aired on both shows so they tried to at least make a big deal out of this one even if it uh really wasn't and liam as you know the tag division is uh about to get a, a bit of a jump start with uh not just one but two new teams uh yes. on the and thank god because this this division's needed it for a year yeah okay big boss man and nails in the nightstick match yes boss indeed win, blowing off that feud it's the baby face getting revenge but the booking seemed odd, considering Bossman was reportedly asking for time off. Didn't he just get some over the summer? And, and Nails was headed for this program with The Undertaker that we mentioned. In retrospect, having watched all this TV, it feels like they should have done Bossman and Nails at SummerSlam. Remember, Bossman returned before SummerSlam uh, yeah. from Angle. I think they could have gotten away with a double DQ there, given the feud. And then you have Nails go over at all the house shows, which is what they did start doing, by the way, uh, before Survivor Series. And then you do an elimination match at Survivor Series where Taker and Boss Man are on one side and Nails and Kamala are on the other. Yeah, perfect. The, the cross-pollination for, for Taker and Nails is there so they can brawl off and do their thing. And, and that there's your double DQ gut the Survivor Series booking that they love to do. <laughs> yeah. But that kind of puts a little bow on that and it moves us nicely into the next thing. Similar to Kamala, the boss man Nails feud, man, it gets repetitive after SummerSlam with Nails in his squash match just throwing the jubber out the ring, calling out the boss man who's apparently never at work, never there <laughs> to answer. Uh, and this this builds over the course of several weeks to The Undertaker arriving for his match. And for the second time, we're going to say the same thing, identical to what they just done <laughs> Earlier in the year with the, the Kamala feud setup, where after they'd announced Taker and Kamala as a random match, they do the ships passing in the night where Kamala's leaving late for a squash match. Taker comes out, they pass in the aisle. This is similar. Nails in the ring won't leave. Taker comes in and they do the stare down and it's a good stare down. And yes. I love, I do like the way 
the commentary frames this where it's like nails isn't afraid like he's the one of the first guys we've seen not be afraid and they're they're doing a good job with this and, and it works good for him considering kamala is like always just runs away yeah he's petrified, so, and, but nails isn't yeah 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 I, I like that. And I agree completely. They totally missed the peak for Bossman and Nails on pay-per-view. This feud cools down rapidly after SummerSlam to a degree. I don't think I even realized. Their limited interactions are piss weak. There is a Bossman Shango match where I was just expecting Papa Shango to do a job because he his 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 time is kind of come and gone to be a, a big time player. And instead, like Nails comes out, Bossman leaves the ring to kind of like slowly stalk nails up the aisle and nails kind of like slowly backs up until he gets the curtain at which point boss man runs after him grabs him by the throat and they both both go through the curtain and it just feels so weak and it's like after after that awesome beating and after boss man's great return promo it feels like when these two when you finally see these two they're going to beat the shit out of each other this is going to be amazing and then it's just the, this terrible really just sluggish bill where they got nothing left in the tank and and the match itself at Survivor Series was, you know, it was a heavily hyped match, but it was like a nothing match. It was like only a few minutes, and it was just like second so on the weak. card. It was so weak too. Like Nails just kind of like got caught and pinned, and then he sort of just gets up and storms like, off backwards like an angry child. Like he just, you know, well, just this got, once again. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're gonna talk about where he may have been storming too, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> it, it, you mentioned Papa Shango. I forgot to put this on. What about that pu- bizarre Papa Shango Repo Man match? Oh my god! <laughs> what the hell was that? a match that had no purpose, didn't go anywhere, no finish? Why? What, what was that on prime time? I think so. Yeah. Okay, and of course, yeah, of course, it ends in a non-finish where Repo Man gets his hook and Papa Shango starts shooting stuff at him. Yeah, Papa Shango in the Repo Man in late '92, and you know, you know. I mean, how far has Papa Shango fallen in six months? Well, not as far as Nails has fallen in six months. <laughs> because we now turn to the coming and going One section. One of my favorite, favorite sections of these shows. So about that Nails Undertaker program, Liam, which yeah. did get the cover of the January 1993 WF magazine. So that they were planning big things uh, for this. What was the gimmick match they were going to run? On the house shows, the rumor, what was, God, what was the name of it? Like an, like an electrocution, an electric, there was something, it was, it was something you could never say today. It was like a death penalty match or something. Yeah, this is ringing the bell, like electric, yeah, electric chair or something. Yeah, it's, it's, it's along those lines anyway. Okay. Well, it doesn't happen because Kevin Wackles, no. AKA Nails, is the one person who we can say with near certainty uh, did not get sexually assaulted by Vince McMahon. But not total certainty. We don't know that for sure. Okay, I don't think it happened. <laughs> there were two men in the room. No one else saw. There were and two he... men in the. There were two men in the room, and only one came out. <laughs> and it wasn't Vince. No. So, for those who are unfamiliar, Nails was upset about his SummerSlam payoff, and he stormed into Vince's office. At was this in TV? Yeah. I mean, it would have been a house show. Vince would have been there at a house show, but it was yeah, a TV. Yeah, it was TV. And goes into Vince's office, and there are some noises being heard. And, uh, you know, when the agents run in, Nails is on top of Vince McMahon choking him. Mm. Yeah. And Nails ran, I guess, after it was broken up and made a phone call that he'd been sexually assaulted by Vince McMahon. 
which you gotta, you know, look, I don't appreciate, you know, anyone that assaults somebody else. It's not great. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not vouching for nails here, but on some kind of carny con man, <laughs> grifter appreciation, <laughs> yeah. um, I do appreciate the fact that with the backdrop of the sex scandals going on, Nails at least had the thought, you know what? That's my out. That's how I'll get this to go away and how they won't chase it. Because the last thing they want is for that to be in the news that I got sexually assaulted by Vince McMahon. And Phil Mushnick picked up on the story. Yeah, yes, he did. And, and, and you know, you talk about, you know, kind of, uh, you know, you don't want to, like, you know, give too much credit to Nails. Well, he was said to be a, quote, hero to some of the boys. For standing up to Vince McMahon. I think Brett even said that on his uh, kayfabe commentaries with Sean he may He may have, but Brett, Brett did say that he was outside the room when it was happening and that Nails was screaming like a hysterical woman at Vince with his voice like really high-pitched about his payoffs and being lied to. And that uh, when, you know, when the when the noise happened, everybody burst in there to take nails off. Like Brett was called in, and Brett's kind of like, "It's all right." <laughs> he just sat lap. He just sat like he just kind of like you know browsed in there and and saw what was going on. But yeah, very much that nails was was it, it wasn't like a, a throttling and a you know just a just a threat. He was trying to do some damage here. Yeah, well, and he, we joke about nails maybe being a quote hero to some of the boys. Well, apparently he was a hero to one particular fan at a TV taping who, post firing, uh, showed up walking around in a nails costume. The Observer reported that fan was then given an Ico Pro shirt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm really sad because remember they did that thing. I, I only just thought it was, they did the uh, what was the episode of Raw? Is it when like Vince is like in fancy dress and he's dressed as a convict? Oh, that's right. Yeah, but he, and he's wearing like the black and white stripes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, man, he should have worn the nails jumpsuit. That would have been amazing. <laughs> that would have been. I wonder. I, I, you know what? It was probably too close to it that people would have remembered. But anyway, mm. you talked about nails having an angle and trying to, you know, <laughs> get a few bucks off Vince. Uh, th this is a uh, amusing quote I pulled from the Observer. Quote, the supposed $150,000 that nails was trying to, quote, extort according to the WFPR team, was in fact money that he wanted to be paid in advance for putting Undertaker over every night at the house shows. And the SummerSlam payoff he was so upset about was $8,000. Mm. Finally, his case might be somewhat undercut by testimony from another wrestler who went on the record under condition of anonymity stating that Wachholz was complaining about drug testing and said that, quote, the only way to make money in this company is to claim someone grabbed your dick. <laughs> Well, I guess he had his back. He had his excuse ready. Yeah, well, and, you know, if, if you want the laughs to continue, when uh, he when Wachholz showed up as the prisoner at WCW yes. Slambury '93, a last minute replacement for Scott Norton, who yeah, did a job as Sting. Disgraceful by Scott Norton, by the way. Well, where did they bill the prisoner as being from? Green Bay, Wisconsin, where this incident took place. In yeah. <laughs> I do love that. I okay. love that. God, that okay. wrestling's great. Yeah, uh, of course, Nails would later go on to become a star witness in Vince's steroid trial, which oh, yes. we will talk about at a different time. Um, head TV producer John Filippelli, considered a major get for Titan at the time of his hiring, has quit uh, during this period because he wants to work in real sports again. And thus, most of his underlings will likely follow him out the door to save costs. The position Filippelli held will be eliminated. <laughs> wow gee whiz that's that sounds like a huge loss i guess i mean if if you don't even bother to replace the guy like how critical is it 
Yeah, I mean, there, there have been some upgrades to TV, which we'll talk about in a moment. Yeah. Of course, yeah, of yeah. course, TV TV's about to go under a major facelift yes. uh, in early 1993. But uh, let's stick with coming and going for now, uh, Liam. And uh, it's been more going than coming uh, in 92. Is that what she said? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, save for Razor Ramon, at least, the, the one uh, newcomer that we've, we've touted and talked about. But towards the end of the year here, we have a lot of people returning and or debuting. Yes, and again, listeners, consider if you, if you don't already know about this kind of period of time and, and have seen all this, consider this is going on against the backdrop of, as we've said, Warrior gone, Bulldog gone. Now Nails has disappeared. Brett's the champion suddenly. Now we've got all of this, all of this being introduced at once. Yes, and our first returnee we will talk about is Marty Janetti, who comes yes. back with a great angle and a great Guns N' Roses t-shirt. Uh, great attacking- shirt. Yeah, attacking Shawn Michaels. Uh, for those who have not seen that angle, somehow Michaels is, uh, this is pre-Icy title win, is doing his usual pre-match routine where Sherry's holding the mirror for him and he's like, you know, putting his hands through his hair. Marty Jannetty comes out of the crowd and in a great bit of production. As Shawn is looking in the mirror, Marty Jannetty appears behind him in the mirror. Marty kicks his ass Uh and, you know, he grabs the mirror. Sean and Sherry are standing there. Uh, Marty's going to hit Sean with the mirror, but Sean pulls Sherry in front. And Sherry actually takes uh, uh, the mirror shot. Well, we'll get to <laughs> Sherry in a minute. But I mentioned this in part one of our 92 series, Liam, when we talked about the barbershop angle. I love how this worked out. I mean, it sucks for Marty that he had to leave due to legal trouble. But in the interim, Sean grows as a singles act. He gets the Intercontinental title, and then his former partner comes back uh, for revenge. Better than them feuding right away, in my opinion. It made the issue hotter right off the rip with Jannetty returning. I, I Absolutely. This is an excellent angle, as you've mentioned. And the timing, to me, works out well in every sense, as we'll, as we'll come to in a second. But the idea, if, if they'd have just done the feud after the barbershop angle with Jannetty losing, then he's kind of toast. And he's yes. got nowhere to go. And Sean doesn't really get that much out of it either, because... You know, the Rockers were not, as, you know, if you cast your mind back to the Rockers, they were over, but they weren't really doing anything for a long time in no. 1991. So it's like, I, yeah, I don't know how hot that gets Sean anyway. This way, they've given, they've put all this time into him. They've used Sherry to help strengthen Michaels. Janetti comes back and this just immediately feels like, oh, yes, we've got a hot issue, a hot angle out of nowhere. This is brilliant. Sean pulls Sherry in the way and just like, tremendous chicken shit move and i love this angle because i always like when you have something where it's like okay on a piece of paper marty Janetti returns and attacks Shawn michaels that on its own is like great and like it puts us in a great position the idea of adding the extra thing to make it even more memorable with the sherry mirror angle which again perfectly duplicates in a way the the the, the barbershop and the glass and the broken glass on the ground and everything like that it's just this is perfect this is perfect Yes. Uh, honestly, in terms of an icy title feud, this may have been the best one in years when you think yeah. about it. Like, I, I can't think of a, different, a better one. What was like, because you think about like, you know, Brett had the classic icy title matches because we've talked about the, the, they weren't feuds, really. No. Like, the perfect thing wasn't a feud. Bulldog wasn't like, I mean, they did promos in the up to Bull, but it wasn't a feud. It's kind of the same thing with Piper. Piper, like, yeah. In terms of like a baby face and a heel feuding over the icy title with a good personal grudge. I think you'd honestly have to go back to something like Warrior and Rude. Yeah, so that's what that's what my mind was drawing to. Oh, Boss Man Perfect, I suppose. That was, you know, um, with the Heenan family more so than this, perfect specifically. But yeah. Boss Man Perfect had something going. 
you could say that one. Um, Sherry, uh, so she gets the brunt of the <laughs> uh, the angle here, getting hit with the mirror. She's off TV for a little bit. I think she wanted time to be off with her kid. Uh, she actually got glass remnants legit stuck in her, I, I don't know if it was her head or her eye, but uh, Jesus. she got some shrapnel. I mean, these angles <laughs> were back in the day, man. They using real glass. Um, but on screen... Okay, they do a Sean and Sherry's split. Sean never calls Sherry. They play this up on television. They keep asking, well, you know, have you called Sherry? And Sean's like, oh, I've been meaning to, but I just haven't gotten around to it. Uh, Eventually, (laughs) he does say that Sherry should, quote, stay home where a woman should be. (laughs) Can't say that anymore on television. No, but, you know, he's a heel. Yeah, and this is basically teasing a Sherry babyface turn, which is what we get at the Royal Rumble. I I will say this about the... Uh, Marty Jannetty in this feud. Jannetty's promos after the angle definitely show to me that they chose the right rocker to push. Oh, God, yeah. So they do, they do one. So they do one when Jannetty comes out on the podium with Gene that was serviceable at best. Mm-hmm. It was like Jannetty had like a good line, but the rest of his delivery is rocky. And then you get into the primetime confrontation with Sean and Janetti, and Sean just runs rings around this poor fucker. Yeah. <laughs> like, absolutely <laughs> torpedoes him. Yeah, so there's, like, a, a side by. They were doing this a lot on primetime. Uh, I think we yeah. talked about like, a Savage and Ramon one on the last episode where they'd have the uh, feuding people in different studios, even though they were, like, <laughs> in the other room <laughs> in actuality, but they were different in, in their hometowns or whatever. And they would credit, like, the local TV stations, the, the syndicated stations, right? Like, Which, oh, if WKNY, yeah. In San Antonio. I liked that, actually. But you're right, Sean just owned Marty on, on that particular promo. He did. And uh, having said that, we talked about the timing being good for Janet to come back. Look at the timing here. That They need babyfaces desperately who can connect with the audience that the audience is familiar with but don't feel like they're old hat. Janetti, like just saunters into like a top five babyface position immediately because he feels cool. He feels interesting. He feels exciting. He's got a hot issue, one of the hottest issues in the company right off the rip. And it's especially necessary because some of the other new babyfaces that we're seeing, not quite Marty Janetti. Uh, yes, Bob Backlund came back. <laughs> yeah. Specifically, a, a series of vignettes that really, I, I know that they were trying to, you know, highlight his WWF title run in the late 70s, early 80s. But these vignettes just made him seem like yesterday's news and an old man. The music, it should be noted, was the opening bars to the WrestleMania 10 theme before it kicked into the now familiar Linda McMahon entrance music. <laughs> um, Bob was reportedly not getting over at house shows. Yeah. Although his return to MSG in November, that show did 12,000. That stunned me. Where, where was he on the card? Let's look it up. Let's I do forget. it. Let's take a quick look. Sometimes it's so funny. Like sometimes I'm just like, ah, whatever. I'll remember this. And then I, I of course, can't possibly remember all this. So let's see. History of 92. Madison Square Garden. Okay. November 28th, 1992, 12,300. My God. Uh, Bob Backlund pinned Rick Martell, sub for the Mountie with a small package. Backlund's MSG return after a more than eight-year absence. The other matches on this card were Lance Cassidy over the Brooklyn Brawler. <laughs> yes, Lance. Crush over the Repo Man. Nasty Boys over Money, Inc. via DQ. Uh, the Big Boss Man sub for Davy Boy Smith over Kamala. Oof. Max Moon over Terry Taylor. We'll get to them in a minute. Yeah. And The Undertaker sub for Ultimate Warrior Pin Nails. That's the main event? Yes. Wow. 
That's in twelve thousand three hundred at MSG. Wow. So so we're saying that possibly Warrior Nails advertised no. to twelve thousand. Dude, I think honestly, like, because I mean, Bob was a big draw in MSG. I think you do have to credit Bob. I mean, wow. They, they didn't do anything with him after because they saw, but I mean, it, it just wasn't. It wasn't your older brother's Bob Backlund or your father's Bob Backlund, I guess. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I mean, that, that that's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. What do you think about Bob? As a kid, I thought he sucked and was very dirty. <laughs> and, and I could not believe the absurd projections they had for him in the in the torch, like that he would be wrestling Ric Flair at WrestleMania. Come on, you know these. these we got. Like, so I don't know. That's just that's. You got this feud with perfect between Bob Backlund and Ric Flair. They're just the most boring man alive. Let's talk about these vignettes for what they are. Even Heenan, Heenan's just ripping on Backlund for how dull he is in his return match. Like it comes out to no music. These videos that they're showing just look ancient compared to the WWF we know now. Like yes. it just it looks so old, so outdated. His fucking haircut. <laughs> his 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 big suit. His delivery is they're like they cut back to him just sitting like in his sofa, looking still yeah, his, as a still his, as a brick talking about his comeback. His his suit was way too loose, man. You got to get a better fit than that, Bob. If you're gonna be if you're gonna be a man, if you're gonna wear a suit on television, come on, man. And showing him in his glasses and apron at the fucking family barbecue. <laughs> what are we doing? Although, <laughs> having said that, I did like the way he wrestled his squash matches. I also did like him like building the house, and he's like, got to do it. Gotta get, yeah, like, yeah. like the guy's like, we're going to miss you around here, Bob, building houses. And he's like, yeah, got to do it. But uh, I guess now, because, you know, I've started to compile the, the notes for the first section of 1993. Oh, yes. And we're really not going to talk about Bob Backlund actually a lot in 1993. So let's just mention, he gets that inexplicable rumble run yeah. where he's number one and lasts like the whole match. He, he, he just did not get over. We joked, I think, in the last episode because we talked about the them making contact with Backlund, which was so shocking at the yeah. time, out of nowhere. It's so funny. Bob Backlund and Razor Ramon kind of come into this promotion around the same time. They wrestle at WrestleMania 9. Ramon's a heel. Backlund's a babyface. And yet it was the opposite roles where both would really click during this time period. Yeah. And by the way, the fans are cheering Razor. <laughs> they are. They are. <laughs> um, head Shrinkers. Are also in yes. the former Samoan SWAT team. They've been rumored to come in for months. I think going all the way back to the spring. They are the team that helps Money Inc. win back the belts. They show up in the middle of the match, but it's just sort of a distraction that leads yeah, to Earthquake it's... taking a nice bump. It's just really a whole weird deal. Uh, the Head Shrinkers at Survivor Series squash High Energy, which was uh, delighted a lot of people around me. High Energy was not popular in my section. People were very excited when they lost that match. When I remember there was a spot where Offa hits, I think Coco beware with this with the big stick. Yeah. yeah. And the crowd popped big around me, like the entire row behind me, like people, <laughs> people did not like high energy uh, here in the Richfield Coliseum uh, at survivor series 92. But this, this was a good pickup, the head shrinkers for the tag. Yeah, absolutely. We needed new blood. Like we said, it feels weird to me that they weren't involved in that survivor series match, considering that they played a role in the outcome of the of the title change. It seems very organic to have done Money Inc. and the Head Shrinkers against the Disasters and, and the Nasties. Um, not sure why they didn't do that. Well, but well, uh, I, I think it's because, and you noted this, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll say that you noted because I want to steal your thunder. <laughs> it, it, it's because I, I think they didn't want 
they, they wanted to put the baby faces over in that match and they yeah. didn't want to beat the head shrinkers who were so new. So they gave the head shrinkers a win on pay-per-view and the Beverly's who were in that spot, they were just a team that nobody gave a shit about and they could lose and who gives yeah, a fuck about the, them. The Beverly's probably at this point when they're looking at their kind of career trajectory, they they have to know they're out the door because with, with, with depth as much as it is, the fact they're still in the same spot is kind of <laughs> not great. Yeah, that not been a good run for them. Uh, okay, so that's... Uh, you know, we've talked about some new baby faces uh, in terms of singles. Marty Jannetty's back, Bob Backlund's back, new heel tag team. Well, we need some new heel singles yes, here we because do. we've got a, a baby face world champion. And strengthening the heel side is Yokozuna and Bam Bam Bigelow are in. <laughs> yes, this indeed. is an interesting note. As a kid, Liam, I was very upset and dare I say confused when Bam Bam was brought back as a heel. Yeah. Because... You know, I was watching in 87 when he came in the first time as a baby face. I loved Bam Bam Bigelow <laughs> in that run. And I didn't understand why the WWF wouldn't remember that. I was like, why do I have to boo this? I liked this guy last time I saw it, You know, it's not like he had done anything at the end of that run. To, it, it was just like, okay, Bam Bam Bigelow. They maybe kind of mentioned he'd been in the promotion before. I think the WWF Magazine had mentioned he'd been in the promotion before. But it, it, it's really weird how... They bring him back on the opposite side. I mean, it makes sense because it's a babyface champion. But, like, in terms of canon and kayfabe, it's odd that they would bring a guy back who was a fairly successful babyface as a heel. And I think the vignettes were very poor, actually, that they brought him back with. Oh, they were garbage. They just like, they were like they were so cheap and shit. There's no thought in them whatsoever. It's just him standing in front of again the green screen they use for slick with some flames in the background while Bam Bam screams the most generic. Yeah, he just screams his own name a bunch of times. He just screams about how he's going to beat people up. It's really very uninspired. But yeah, you get the sense the way that they think. It's like Vince just thinks no one remembers that, you know? Hey, this was the first time they had done that. Like, because I was kind of like a, a, I don't want to say nerdier fan, but like just a, a more thoughtful fan. Like, mm. in the, even for like a 12-year-old. And, and I'm trying to think of like, you know, because we had had some people who had been in the promotion before and brought back with different gimmicks, like Mike Rotunda, IRS comes to mind. Yeah. But, like, it, it, they're just acting like, like, here, it's, like, it's very obviously the same person, and it's just, like, weird that he's... Yeah, like, it's, 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 it's a more extreme version of when Ricky Steamboat comes back as the dragon, to me. Yes, very good point. Very yeah. good point. Um, Yokozuna. Uh, yeah. Meltzer, Meltzer predicts big things. Um, I, I know that you note that he shows up just kind of one day looking pretty awesome and the, and the fans gasp when that robe comes off. That's yes, they do. That, that was, Survivor Series too. Yeah, that was something they played, I think, in that Yokozuna Icons documentary that was on Peacock. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, the, he, he definitely, just because of his size, you know, people took note. But I've got to ask you this. Was the stereotypical Japanese route necessary with Yokozuna? Uh, that's an interesting one. I was actually I was I was trying to come up with what I think about that. I don't think it was necessary, but I do think it helped give him an identity straight away. That yeah, I think, that, that I think at least was distinctive. The whole thing of the sumo. We, this is something we haven't seen before. You'll probably know this. There is a there is a video out there somewhere of a squash match of the Head Shrinkers battering a pair yes. of jobbers with Gorilla Monsoon saying that there is a the rumors are a third head shrinker coming to the WWF that weighs over 450 pounds yeah, which and, quite and clearly think, would have been Yokozuna 
and he does some dark matches as Coquina. And yeah. so I guess that's my question. Do we think him having the character of Yokozuna like was a net positive if he over him just being like Coquina, like and just using the size as the selling point for the heel? Like I, I guess what I'm getting at is like I mean, are, are we supposed to believe that, like, Mr. Fuji, uh, when he goes home, is, like, watching, like, videotapes of Pearl Harbor? Like, it's, like, <laughs> like, like it's, like, war porn or something like that. Where it's, I mean, like, I don't know. I, I just feel like the stereotypical Japanese heel was very outdated. It was outdated. Vince was thinking about doing that in 2004 with Kenzo Suzuki, for Christ's sake. <laughs> over a decade later so yeah I, mean, I think he still thinks that japanese people are furious about world war ii and that we should hate them still because of all the you know all the jobs they took in the motor industry i guess which i think is something that dusty Rhodes was was big on trying to tap into as well at points um Pillman did too that one that's there. what i mean that's why because yeah. they they were they sure wanted pillman to hit that point and they would they would move a couple times too when it wasn't really appropriate but yeah i i think that out of the gate well, I think that the Japanese stereotype thing is obviously unnecessary for, for for this act. The identity of for him, rather than just being like generic monster heel, not that he would have been generic, but just that whole thing of like this is a sumo. It's very WWF, is what I'll put. Yes. Is, is the way that I can think of it. And you know what? Sometimes that does work, and I think this is one of the cases where it probably did. Yeah, and he uh, uh, squashes Virgil at Survivor. Oh man. That's a great squash match. I really enjoy that match, especially when he just drops his ass on him at one point. And the crowd's like, oh, Jesus Christ. And believe it or not, Kyle, believe it or not, this is the one podcast where I will put over Lord Al Hayes. Because My the, God. Interview, the interview that he does with Virgil after the match is just tremendous. <laughs> because when Lord Al at SummerSlam is just, you know, talking about the acts of rudeness. He's trying to barge in on people's locker rooms. Lord Al, the most bumbling, unaware fucking guy in the company, walks up to Virgil after he's just been given a pasting by Yokozuna and says, Virgil, I've never seen anyone take such a shellacking. What, what was it like? What was it like? Is that the one where Virgil calls Yokozuna Yakazuma? Yakazuma, man. I got to tell these folks about Yakazuma, man. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. It's um, awful, but Lord, having the balls to ask that question is just tremendous. Well, you know, there may have been a reason Virgil was buried like that, because according to the Torch, ah. Bam Bam Bigelow's actual debut was a. This was a dark match. It was against Virgil, but it became unairable because Virgil wasn't selling. Jesus Christ! Jesus Christ, Virgil! It's over, man. Give it up. You know, he's, Virgil yeah. wasn't selling. He's, it was just thinking, he's like, I just went toe to toe with the world champion. I shouldn't be sad for this guy. See, I wonder if that was the Lord Al. I wonder if I wonder if the office told Lord Al to bury him. Send him the code <laughs> red. Uh, not everyone is a winner, much like Virgil. Um, mm -hmm. Terrific Terry Taylor, Lance Cassidy, who was Steve Armstrong, and Damian Demento all yeah, debuted I, during this period. I had no memory of Lance Cassidy in the WWF whatsoever. Not wow. when he showed up, I did not know he was there. I never knew he was there. This is a complete blind spot to me. Terry Taylor is a weird one in the sense that they just bring him back against Jim Brunzel. Unlike, <laughs> it's like Jim Brunzel versus Terry Taylor for like 10 minutes on TV. Just again, totally different style of match to what we would expect to see on TV. In, in this type of role, between two people who really have nothing, you know, like Jim, it's, it's just Terry Taylor and Jim Brunzel randomly having a match. 
I feel like they could have actually done something with Terry Taylor, believe it or not, around this time. Demento absolutely just sucks balls. He's a terrible, he's a terrible wrestler. He's a terrible character. And, uh, you know, a knee drop finish. What are we doing? Yeah, Taylor won that Brunzel match with a powerbomb. Yeah, a Liger bomb, no less. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I couldn't remember what kind of bomb it was. And yeah, you wanted on it. It feels like Taylor and Cassidy were signed solely to fuck with Smoky Mountain. Yeah, there's like, probably something to that. <laughs> like that, that's where they should have. I think Smoky Mountain had interest in like because at first, like Taylor, I think had sent feelers to WWF, and they're like, "Yeah, we're not gonna fucking sign Terry Taylor." Then all of a sudden, they did. So yeah, it's weird. Uh, he's another one where they kind of mentioned he'd been in the promotion before, but there's just no discussion of the Red Rooster. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Well, yeah, obviously. So. Um, I always, I, I was always sad. I can't remember if it was me that came up with this or if it was a friend of mine who was like, you know, Rick Martel needed to be in a tag team. He should have bought in his personal Taylor, and it should have been Terry Taylor. Oh, there you go. Well, we talked about how Martel it would have been better than IRS for yes, Diossi earlier in the year. Yeah, that's right. His personal Taylor. That would, oh, that would have just pissed Terry Taylor off. I kind of fucking <laughs> hate Terry. To be honest, I kind of fucking hate Terry Taylor. <laughs> I, I talked about this on our WrestleMania ninety-one review. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for Top Rope Nation, I just, I, it really kind of just grinds my gears going back and reading the newsletters in the time period, how like Dave and Wade <laughs> were so aghast that Terry Taylor was putting over Dustin Rhodes. Terry Taylor should have fucking put over Dustin Rhodes in 1991. Um, Terry Taylor was going to wrestle Max Moon at the Royal Rumble. And that didn't happen. Yeah, that's another one that's weird. It's like a, no, no memory of that whatsoever, that that was on the books. I guess was I, this had to have been only mentioned in the magazine. Yeah, it was, it, it was absolutely in WF magazine, but the match does not take place in both, uh, Moon is in the Rumble. I, I think Taylor is too. I think they're both. They both. Yeah, they up. are. Okay. Um, somebody who does not make it to Royal Rumble by today three. Somebody who I don't even think made it to a second day on the job. Jimmy <laughs> Garvin did a dark segment in a suit and tie. Uh, and it was an interview where he predicted all the heels would win at Survivor Series. This pretty much bombed. Liam, please tell me you've seen this. Yes, I've seen this. I've seen this, Kyle. I am, I am so, okay, what you just said about Terry Taylor is how I feel about this ass white Jimmy Garvin. I oh, cannot, okay. I cannot stand Jim Garvin. Babyface Jimmy Garvin in 92 WCW, I just, I, you know. Yes, yes. Give, give me a handgun. Freebird Garvin in WCW was one of Chad Repack's least favorite wrestlers of all time. Good man, Chad. Yeah. Good uh, man, Chad. There was apparently a rumor uh, th- th- I got this from Scott Keith's blog, so take that with a grain of salt. With a grain of salt, that some people were thinking Garvin was going to be Doink, even though Matt Bourne was already working dark matches at this point. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that might be like one of those wrestling myths because they probably okay. came in around the same time. I, I don't know, but I, I don't think that feels right to me. I feel like Matt Bourne, when he came in, I know that there was already kind of talk about him doing a, the clown gimmick because he kind of been around Lonnie Mayne and kind of had ideas about it himself anyway. So I think that this was already, I don't feel like that's right. Yeah. And thank God anyway, because Garvin just stinks <laughs> on this segment. <laughs> so bad. Just it's, stinks. It is so awful. The crowd doesn't <laughs> care about this man, and I don't blame them one bit. Gene Oakland seemed pretty disgusted. Gene Oakland's had no time for this guy. And it just said, you know, if there was any indication that Vince still had something about him, it's the fact that he said no to Jimmy Garvin. He signed Damien Demento and thought <laughs> Jimmy Garvin sucked too much. And we can't, I'm, at this point in time in his company when he needs to rebuild, no, not having Jimmy uh, Garvin. Yeah. Um, a couple debuts that we're going to kind of table the conversation uh, mm. until next time. The Steiners are on TV 
Uh, there's a primetime wrestling interview with them in December, and then Doink the Clown, which is Matt Bourne, yeah. uh, but but not really doing enough to to justify a conversation here. We'll get into both uh, in part one of '93. Liam, anything you want to say real quick about these? Yeah, no, I think I think that you you hit the nail. We will be t- talking about these guys a lot more, but they show right at the tail end. There's a big this is a big land for the tag division though. Let's not let's not kind of skip over the fact that the the Steiners coming to the WWF feels this is what we've needed for a long time. And again, this you know, he's not doing yet. The unnamed clown that just yes. shows up and follows the WWF around and pulls pranks on the baby faces is is there from like November onwards. So yeah, yeah this is just the embers of stuff for both these uh, both these acts. Yeah, do, uh, the, the yet the unnamed clown he meanders around during Tatanka and Martel at Survivor Series. Apparently, that was a deal where the where Vince was worried that the crowd would get bored during that match. Why do the match <laughs> if you have to send an unnamed clown out to distract people? Maybe the ma- the problem is the match. But yeah, uh, uh, the clown becomes a, a regular on television. But we'll have a discussion with him. Uh, next episode, uh, Jinichiro Tenru and that youngster Carlos Colon are going to be in the Royal Rumble. Why? I don't know. <laughs> Why? SWS was done, man. There was no they, need for this. I, I, I guess the roster was pretty weak, and they were, they were they'd see probably political favors. Yeah, well, yeah, and, I mean, when you, when you cut down to brass tacks, you know, two, yeah, it's, it's, it's a political deal. There is a lack of depth, and I mean, when you just look at the lineup in that Royal Rumble, and you see some of the people that are in there, including Damien Demento, yeah, they probably needed some help. But you talk about reaching out to other promotions. I got so excited, my voice cracked there for a second. (laughs) Hell freezes over, Liam O'Rourke, in the final weeks of 1992, because Jerry the King Lawler comes to the World Wrestling Federation. Shocking as it was at the time, it was kind of foreshadowed by the, quote, working arrangement with uh, the Memphis Territory, USWA, uh, and WWE that began months earlier. This is humorous. Lawler and Jeff Jarrett had actually done an appearance at a Memphis WF house show earlier in 92, and Jarrett challenges Bret Hart for the IC title at the next Memphis show, and and Bret Hart accepts. Well, that show had to be canceled due to poor ticket sales. Can't make it up! (laughs) Sorry, Jeff. So I, I don't really know if that's like the. I, well, oh, I feel we're, we're 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 uh, may, maybe it says something on Jeff Jarrett but I feel we're kind of underselling this deal with Lawler. But Lawler. this was this was really stunning that Jerry Lawler, given his history with the WWF, the things he'd said about Titan, um, the Harley Race lawsuit where Race couldn't be promoted as the king when yep. WWF ran Memphis. Uh, this was a big deal, even though he kind of comes in and just an announcing role. Yeah, he replaces Perfect on primetime when he goes babyface. And this just promotion just feels fucking wild with all these new faces and these manic changes going on all at the same time. Lawler, having not exactly been... He was no shrinking violet as the WF was expanding and Memphis was going down. He, he, was, he was putting up a fight and he was vocal and he, you know, he jumped on the opportunity to talk to the media when the scandals were going on. I mean, you can find the... the the excerpts and the stuff he does on radio shows and stuff where he's talking about, you know, the drugs and the, the scandals, which, you know, I'll, I'll skirt past sex scandals and Jerry Lawler in the same sentence, but that's, that's, that's something for the 93 series, I suppose. But um, I just, I really think that this is one of those ones where you really see, and, and, and we will you know, summarize this with a bigger picture thing. 
it go it speaks to just how much they wanted new viable acts around that they were willing to make this happen themselves because even though it's like it's stunning that Lola would go it's also like they they were happy to have him they wanted him well and he's probably the biggest name that had never been in the company at that point right yes yeah at least out like like I don't know that wasn't a WCW guy I guess yeah it sounded like a thing but yeah but yeah he's gone LOD have gone Flair's gone the Horsemen have been there Sid's been there yeah, I mean, in terms of just like pilfering, like the the funk, funk, yo, know, yeah, a lot of these guys, Brody, but you know, whatever he's, he's obviously he's Car- dead at this point. But I mean, know. yeah, I mean, Kerry Von Erich and, and and Sergeant Slaughter. I mean, in terms of like just pilfering those last remaining like territorial headliners, Lawler was was the last guy to do it, and he comes yep. in, and it, it's kind of it's a. We'll talk more about Lawler and like how he was used in '93. Obviously, it, it kind of takes a while till they do anything meaningful with him. Certainly. Uh, but uh, it, it was big news in the newsletters that Jerry Lawler showed up, even if it was just, if you were a WWE fan, he was just an announcer. I, I mean, I knew who Jerry Lawler was, uh, you know, when when he showed up. I had watched AWA television and, and whatnot. No. I, so, yeah, I was, I was well aware. I actually thought it was odd because I'd always see Lawler as a baby face, and I thought it was weird that he was a heel. Yeah, coming in WWE, that role. I can imagine. Like a, mm-hmm. Especially because right. all, all the magazine coverage was obviously in that kind of light as well. Like the Aptomags always have a... Babyface Lawler is a, in, a, in a very positive light. So. Yeah, yeah, my first uh, initiation to Jerry Lawler was the Kurt Heading feud for the AWA title because the AWA was obviously on that 4 p.m. Eastern time slot right after I would get home from school on ESPN. So I, I had known Lawler for quite a bit. So I knew it was a big deal when he showed up. And um, it was just weird that he was a heel announcer at first. Yeah. All right. Uh, my mock Survivor Series 92 elimination card. I promise oh, this. You, you so, promised it. Let's hit the music. Let's hit the right, music. We're going to hit the music. I think I'm going to try to do a Vince voice. If this bombs, I'm <laughs> really sorry. All right. You ready? <laughs> Let's do it. Your main event, Randy, Macho Man Savage, Mr. Perfect, Brett, the Hitman Heart, and Marty Jannetty oh. versus Team Captain, Nature Boy Ric Flair, Razor Ramon, Intercontinental Champion Shawn Michaels and 500 plus pound Yoko Zuna. Oh, good stuff. <laughs> now, good you probably want to know how I would break, how I would book that as we pause here. Uh, you probably want to know how I would book that match. Absolutely. Not telling you until the next episode. No! Oh, <laughs> please! Okay. Uh, I would also keep that Disasters Nasties versus Money Inc. Beverly Brothers match just because we need to have five matches here. So here we go again. (laughs) Team Captain The Undertaker. Former World... I'm so proud of this. Former World Heavyweight Champion Bob Backlund. Virgil and Max Moon. (laughs) To take on Team Captain Kamala. The Berserker. Papa Shango. And Damien Demento. Let me get that right. Kamala, Shango, Demento. Who's the, the second guy? The Berserker. Berserker. That's why I didn't know who it was. Jesus Christ, that your team. I just love the idea that they <laughs> the Undertaker back with Virgil and Max. <laughs> and what's the like, fuck it, let's just make this weird. Yeah, I love it. Okay. Team Captain. The Big Boss Man, Matador, and High Energy oppose Team Captain, the former convict, Nails, Bam Bam Bigelow, and the Head Shrinkers. 
Yeah, okay, good. Light that one. Light that one a lot. Putting the heels over on that one. Yeah. And then you talk about scraping the bottom of the Pat Patterson barrel, baby. Here you go. <laughs> we haven't had it already with the Kamala team. Team Captain Tatanka joins forces with Crash, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and Lance Cassidy to take on Team Captain Rick Martell, Terrific Terry Taylor, The Repo Man, and Skinner. Oh, Skinner's still around. <laughs> Job into, into all and sundry at this point, Skinner. So you so you see why maybe depth was an issue. I, I don't know how that car. I really like the main event match that there. Um, yeah. and, I, and again, I'm going to break down. To be fair, you might have actually been able to do just that as the only elimination match on the show. And you could have done some of the gimmick matches underneath. But again, I'm going to talk about in part one of 93 um, why I would have done that. I, I'll let you know part of the reason. Remember we talked about, okay, should Savage have picked Brett? That would have been the best thing for Brett. Well, here you get the best of both worlds. You get the hot shot, Mr. Perfect, and Brett's part of it. Yeah, yeah. So that, 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 I, I think it works there. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. But uh, the rest of the card, Liam? The rest of the card is going to struggle. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. um, but I do, I mean, <laughs> I'm still in awe of the Kamala team. <laughs> I think that you thought that, you thought that Taylor, Repo, and Skinner on the same team was good. I mean, that is hideous. That's absolutely a, a hideous team. And to be honest, all these heel teams look like that awful team from Survivor Series '91 that everybody knows and loves. But like, I uh, I, I can't really say that this would have been worse. I do like the strength of the main event a great deal. I do think, I mean, to be honest, outside of like, you know, take a, I mean, Jesus Christ, take a Bob, Virgil, and Moon. <laughs> I just, I like, I was trying to move it together, like, because it, it was tough, man. Like, because you have to think of, like, who's going to survive. It's hard. Like, like yeah. the under, like, the baby faces would have won in the Undertaker match, obviously. You know, Undertaker and Backlund can survive. Um, in the Boss Man Nails team match, I had Bigelow and the Head Shrinkers surviving. I actually did I did the weak double DQ with Boss Man and Nails. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. And, then, and then the Tatanka Martel. I made the Martel team so weak because they were gonna fucking lose, obviously. And Tata yeah. and like I, I think other I think maybe I gave the token elimination on Lance Cassidy, but uh Tatanka Crush and Duggan all get to survive. Yeah, maybe Duggan could get disqualified with two by four. As, as he always does. Yes, yeah. but Tatanka crash all team up but uh yeah so i don't know man if you if, yeah i wasn't necessarily trying to make like an awesome card i was trying to think of what they maybe could have done it then like i was just like what if i just made these teams preposterous well this is it like when you actually look at the what's going on in the company though i mean what you've done there is you've split the three things that even resemble programs that they've got going take a kamala which is as we've talked about these things are on fumes anyway so it's tough going take a kamala boss my nails uh, sorry yeah uh, take a kamala boss my nails to tonka martel and then just like fill the rest and around it in such a way where you could actually get, like we said, come out of this with something. Nails, you know, Bigelow and the head shrinkers need some steam. So give them that. Nails needs to be protected to degree. Do that. You know, Taker can get his will on Kamala and the rest of those heels can just, can just go in the bin because they're terrible. But then, yeah, and again, like the heel side, the heel side struggling with depth anyway so bad that like they're just going to get pillared in these matches. Yeah, and you know the thing is, I mentioned earlier in the show that you could have done an elimination match where Undertaker and Boss Man were on one side and Kamala and Nails were on the other. I tried yep. doing that, but the problem is then you, you merge two of the top feuds together. You got and nothing else. You, 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 I, I then had to 
break up my main event where like Brett was a captain and Shawn Michaels was a captain. Mm. And it was like, I think I had like Shawn Michaels, Papa Shango and the head shrinkers against Brett Hart, Marty Jannetty and high energy. So the thing I like about the, that's, the thing I like about the main event that you've got there is that that doesn't have to come off. Cause the thing is, let's be honest. Most of the time in survivor series, the reason why these elimination matches are being lamented is, Oh, you can just put anything on pay-per-view as, as Meltzer had said there in the analysis. It's because, they really did just take feuds that were kind of on their last legs, like Hogan and Earthquake in 90, for example, yeah. or, you know, LOD Demolition. And they just, like, put them in these lazy matches where it basically just feels like a glorified house show. But the reason I like that main event is because these are there's a lot of new stuff going on all at the same time. Yes. Everybody feels relevant. It feels like that, that match, there are so many guys in that match who you would actually want to see what's going to happen in this match. because And the main event's what sells anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that and again, that main event was Macho Man, perfect. Bret Hart and Marty Jannetty against Ric Flair, Razor Ramon, Shawn Michaels, and El Cazuda. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so there, there you go. Just thought that would be fun to do. I liked and, it. That was fun. That was a good, uh, good effort. Um, hopefully, it wasn't a waste of time. Uh, a waste. Uh, there, what was a waste of time was these new rules and supposed new product direction that the newsletters talked about with the WWF in the fall of 1992. This was printed in the Observer, so apparently this was a directive from Ray Stevens, who uh, thought the product was going too far in the fantasy direction. Stevens had been brought in by Pat Patterson when Patterson returned to the company, and there was a feeling they needed to swing back in the other direction for the good of the product. So this is what apparently everyone was told behind the scenes, and this this was reported in the newsletters. One, the matches will be worked realistically with an emphasis on holds. Two, all the action is to stay inside the ring, outside of main eventers. Three, yelling at the crowd for cheap heat is to be avoided. Mm. Four, Managers are not supposed to be involved in the match unless specifically involved in the finish. In fact, they have been instructed to sit in a chair at ringside and stay there. What the fuck is this all about? So along with this on TV, so I don't think you really noticed any of this at all on television. No. Um, But on television, they do introduce Sergeant Slaughter as this new troubleshooter or some bullshit title. (laughs) Um, This was kind of a result of, you know, Razor Ramon cheating to help Ric Flair win the title. Yeah. But then, you know, Brett wins the title, and that's kind of, like, avenged, like, justice has been served. And, like, this just this just goes nowhere. Yeah, and no one complains when it goes. This isn't something that people are like, oh, what would they, what would they have done? No one cares. Like, Slaughter, when, Slaughter studying Martel, uh, Martel, and that's just, like, watching the heels to make sure they do anything wrong. Yeah, he, did, he didn't even do, like, I thought for sure in that match with Martel, Martel was going to keep the Boston Crab on too long, and Slaughter was going to reverse it and give the win to the jobber. But they didn't even do that. Nah, it nothing. Was, so it, how long did this last? Like, when did they stop referring to Sergeant Slaughter as, like, a, the troubleshooter? Like, I, don't even, it, I don't even remember it at all in 93. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it must have lasted just a couple of weeks. Uh, my opinion here, Liam, it, it's funny that when the business turned around some three-plus years later, it was basically because of new concepts, not reverting back to old ones like the ones uh, Stevens is directing here. Something to keep in mind, Cult of Cornette. Mm, yes, very much so. I I, uh, I wholeheartedly agree. This this whole uh, is this going to turn the business around? Is is there is there uh, yeah, is there, no yelling at the crowd for cheap? Yeah, I mean it's just dumb. Yeah, the, the managers must sit in a chair. Like I, I this feels like, and you hate to say it, but it's Bill Watts 
mentality of old rules that don't actually really make a difference. And if they yes. do make a difference, it might it might not even necessarily be a good one because times have changed so much since this might have been applicable in California. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, and to be fair, maybe I'm being unfair with Cornette, like saying that, even though, I mean, he's just kind of like the leading voice now on the podcast of like, it needs to go back to the old ways. I, at some points he makes are actually good and I agree with him. But it's funny you mentioned Watts because both Wade and Dave compared these edicts oh, really? to what Watts was doing in WCW, which, oh, by the way, wasn't working. Not working by, by a significant degree, by the way. Um, I've got a question for you here, actually, about that. When you mentioned about old concepts and new concepts. I wanted to ask you, at this time as a fan, against the backdrop of, again, you talking to your friends and it being not as socially acceptable to be a WWF fan anymore, or go to Survivor Series. It's not, it's not as big a topic of discussion in homeroom anymore. Mm-hmm. Did you... Uh, again, I, I, I understand you're 12, you're probably not thinking in these terms necessarily, but did it cross your mind that things felt stale from a TV standpoint, that things felt very similar at any point? Maybe. I don't. It, here's the problem. I can't answer that question honestly anymore. Yeah. Because, yeah. because I know what's coming now. And I know, <laughs> yeah. I, I know that we're about to see the biggest change to WWF television since 1986. And, like, this was the only WWF, like, you know, I started watching literally as the syndication flipped to Superstars and Challenge. I never right. watched it when it was championship wrestling. So right. I only knew Superstars and Challenge. And I only knew the format I had always seen. And obviously when you watch with the benefit of hindsight, you know, it was completely outdated in 1992 and they needed to make a massive change. Um, All I remember, like in terms of like things maybe being outdated, I remember like with my brother, I would watch TV and like we would, we were in that mode where we would like make fun of like the shitty baby faces, like Max (laughs) Moon or Lance Cassier back. Like this guy's a dork or I don't know what kind of words we used. I probably probably was cursing up a storm already by that point in my life. But like, I I, I do, I I know that there was like a lot of like uncool, I felt like there was like uncool baby faces around this period. Um, But as far as the TV format being stale, I can't honestly answer that because I'm so blinded by what I know and that it was a lot obviously stale and there's such a a massive change coming Uh, in the first month of 93. I guess, okay, so to that point, I guess this will be something that we can tie into, but just as, a, I guess, maybe a teaser for what's coming. When the change happens, does it, is it striking to you? I guess is what I'm getting at. Yes, I, it is, um, I actually, uh, it was so striking when I would um, see the clips of Raw that I, I demanded a second TV in our, a cable TV in our house. Okay, that's, like I wanted that's, to watch, that, that, like, okay. like I, yeah. I felt like I was, and that's something maybe we could, again, we could touch on, but like, I felt like I was missing something. It seemed very cool, very different. There were specifics we'll get into, yeah. but yeah, I, I mean, it might've just because I really love wrestling and I thought I was just missing stuff and wanted to watch it. And I was like, <laughs> mom and dad, it's 1993. Why do we not have a second cable television in this house? But um, <laughs> yeah, it, it like, it definitely, I de- the TV needed to change. And again, we'll talk about that. Um, yes. Because yes. obviously that's, that's one of met several big things when we start 1993. Um, the, the TV had changed a little bit, though, Liam, here in late 92. There was that new video board present. Uh, this was like started right after SummerSlam. Yeah. Where you would see like, you know, um, the guys like, uh, I don't know, logo, I guess for a better term when they'd come out, yeah. it was like, it's a multi-screen. That was a kind of a big deal. There was also a new announcer, uh, on the shows yes. as well. 
Yes, Joe Aiello, I believe. From, <laughs> as, as, a, a face that absolutely nobody, you know, nobody really knows this guy. Like, he's just there for like a very brief period of time. I actually watched not just the, um, the, the video montage of this period of time, but some of the TV shows themselves. They never really mention him <laughs> by name no, very they, often. I, I had to look it up, and it never, even on History of WWE, it doesn't say his name. It, it, I think they called him Joe Blevins on television or something. Oh, okay. Apparently, but, like, yeah, I didn't want to, like, go back and find, like, an interview. I was like, dude, it's not that fucking big of a deal. It's, like, it's really not important. But he's, yeah. he's, he's everywhere, though, during this period of time. He's doing a lot of, uh, lot of, it, lot of uh, the podium interviews. Yeah, I wonder if, uh, you know, they were trying to cut Gene's pay or something like that. I don't know. Um, but, uh, let's conclude here. I guess there's one last thing to talk about. This is something you wanted to talk about a lot. Mm -hmm. Just how different this promotion feels to, compared to the end of 1991. Yeah. And this is, this is, this is going to be the main takeaway of the show. So it's, it makes sense to leave it here. The departures and the sheer amount of new blood coming in, Brett's champion. You compare this to the end of 1991, start of 92. And like you said earlier, there may not have been a year in the history of this company where it looks so completely different at the end than it did at the start but even if you just go to pre-SummerSlam and that horrible period of time we were talking about where the booking was just rotten and that you know that this is the era of Beverly's LOD I'm talking here with you know Mountie versus Slaughter Repo versus Bulldog and these terrible promos that are just you know completely outdated and feel like this company needs new blood it needs a shake-up something needs to happen here this feels like a different promotion from six months ago, let alone one year ago. Let, and even like just you know, pre-SummerSlam, the amount of changes and the feel of these shows, there has been seriously more evolution and turnover in the roster in three months than the previous three years we've talked about combined. At least it feels that way. And the reason why I think that's a really interesting note is because one bleeds to the other. Obviously, business is dipping after WrestleMania 8 as we kind of put a bow on 1992 as a year here. And I find it interesting that after Mania 8 and that wretched period, right up until they you know, they turn SummerSlam into the show you never you thought you'd never see, and they go this different direction with Warrior Savage, Brett Bulldog, and then obviously the, the chaos that follows for the rest of 1992, I feel like there, there, there is a point. There is a point, and it feels like it starts right before SummerSlam, and the result of it is what we're seeing now, where there is just a gigantic change in the promotion. And it may be the return of Patterson just saying this, we need to fucking shake things up. It might be Vince, your know, business just continuing to go down to the point where Vince just knows himself. We need to turf out the Mounties and the repo men and the guys like this who have been around for a long time and are no longer really fulfilling their purpose. And we need some new people, some new ideas, some fresh, you know, characters some fresh angles, a different way of doing things because this isn't working. And of course, the, the irony is that maybe nothing was going to work. But the biggest change of all, not just the fact that Hogan's not around, the change to Brett and all that, but from a presentation perspective, also going is primetime wrestling. Yes. Because the final show of the year sees Gorilla Monsoon with his construction pals. Bob Backlund <laughs> wasn't among them, which seems like a missed opportunity. Um <laughs> Tearing down the set as we prepare for the next evolution of WF television, which will be Monday Night Raw. Yes, and I think that is a great place to stop because changes will not uh, halt as we uh, start 1993. 
each of, well, I, I we're going to break down 1993 into four parts. I've already got that kind of set up how I want to do it. Super. And, and uh, yeah, in part one, the biggest, most significant change to WWF television ever. Certainly yeah. was at the time the biggest in six years. I mean, WWF television had been stale for six years. They had made some minor changes to primetime. Actually, significant, significant changes to primetime, but they didn't do anything. But yeah, Monday Night Raw begins in 1993. And oh, by the way, you know who comes back. So <laughs> we, uh, there, oh boy, is that going to be a big episode? Uh, I the, know, plan, I know. the plan is to cover the first three months of the year. Uh, we will not talk about WrestleMania, what actually happens at WrestleMania 9. We'll talk about the build to WrestleMania 9. And considering where WrestleMania 9 generally ranks in most people's pantheons of WrestleManias, we will attempt to uh, rebook that show uh, for all of you. Uh, and there is a, I've already got all the names down, a massive, massive coming and going section. Uh, oh my God, I can imagine. I mean, yeah, because uh, as Hogan leaves, we say, uh, we bid adieu to, uh, uh, you know, the uh, flagship performer of, uh, you know, the other big national promotion, the guy who had uh, uh, come to Titan for uh, about a little over a year. And uh, he says goodbye. I think we all know who that is. It's Ric Flair. Yes. So, uh, well, I guess we should bid the people adieu now, Leo. We should bid the people adieu. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us for this entire odyssey. Not just this episode, obviously, clocking in over three hours. A pleasure as they always, always Kyle. A pleasure as always. And a black... God damn, I love this shit. This is just... I love talking about periods of time like this, as I mentioned at the start. Looking at this now, it's absolute anarchy, really, in terms of the amount of new people they're going to have to get over. Re, you know, they're gonna have to restructure this promotion so that it resembles something that, and, and i mean this is and maybe this is the thing to close on here not just that final note but it's interesting how we talk about brett because brett's the future here when it comes to 1993 in the first three months as the world champion so i really feel like there is something and this will set the scene when you see brett do those promos and you kind of know that what vince wants is a new Hogan. And of course, that's, that becomes very much a theme in 1993, is wanting yes. Hulk Hogan or a facsimile of Hulk Hogan. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see these first three months as we move into WrestleMania 9 with Bret headlining as the champion, what they do, how they restructure the company, how they frame things, and how these moving parts uh, come into position. And it's, uh, yeah, leading to, <laughs> to one of the more maligned WrestleManias in history. So we have that to look forward to. Thank you very much for joining us for this and for the, the entire series. Kyle, any further words? And Vince McMahon, keep looking over your shoulder. The feds are coming after you <laughs> in 1993. Cheese it, Vince. The feds are here. Yes. So on that note, thank you very much for listening. Kyle Ross, thank you a, uh, an absolute bunch for doing this entire thing with me. Oh. I cannot wait for 1993. I'm gas. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thanks very much. I am Liam O'Rourke for Kyle Ross. We'll be with you again very soon. Thanks for listening.